Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. My name is Jason Peters, and with me, as always, is the man who once got knocked out by Frank Sinatra for trying to hit on Mia Farrow, Mr. Ryan Seabold. What's up, Jason? How you doing, buddy? I'm doing excellent because I'm here with you talking movies. Wouldn't want to be anywhere else, man. Old Blue Eyes gave me a couple of black eyes. That was a rough <laughs> night. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would say he was seeing nothing but red when, when you were around. Uh, yeah. No, he did it his way. Right in the kitchen. No good. <laughs> Dude, you know what? We really need to get like some morning radio sound effects to go with like a lot of these puns and, you know, just like, woo, woo, womp, womp, right? Like just some (laughs) stupid, silly, cheesy noises just to reinforce. I'm sure our listeners would love that. (laughs) Absolutely. So uh, we've got a couple of films here today that exist on, shall we say, opposite end, ends of the spectrum. You think that's fair to say in a certain respect? Uh, the opposite ends of the same spectrum. Uh, you know, the the different views of, of love and romance and, and relationships and how they can go awry. Uh, yep. Absolutely. And uh, Ryan, as always, is going to kick things off with a description of our first film. Take it away, buddy. We got Portrait of a Lady on Fire, one of 2020's uh, top films, I guess. Uh, This made a lot of top 10 lists for a lot of people. I saw this all over the place uh, as the year was coming to a close for movies that I needed to see. Uh, So I'm glad that this was uh, a film that I got to watch pretty quickly because I probably would have seen it regardless because everybody would kept recommending it to me. Uh, We also have Your Friends and Neighbors. A uh, movie by uh, the great Neil Abute. But uh, first off, we have Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, this takes place in France in 1770, where Marianne is uh, commissioned to paint the wedding portrait of Heloise, a young woman who has just left the convent. Because she is a reluctant bride-to-be, Marianne arrives under the uh, guise of companionship, observing Eloise by day and secretly painting her by firelight at night. As the two women orbit one another, intimacy and attraction grow as they share Eloise's first moments of freedom. Eloise's portrait soon becomes a collaborative uh, act of and testament to their love. Jason, what did you think about this movie? Ryan, as always, I'm going to be happy to tell you right after this trailer, except I got you, audience. There's no trailer. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, sometimes... We do a lot of these uh, foreign films. We've actually, it's funny, Ryan, because we've we've done a high number of foreign films throughout the first season of this show. And, it, like, we do have a good number of foreign films on our master list, but I feel like the ratio has been off. Like, we've pulled a lot of them. And so, uh, again, listeners, if you've listened to our show before, when we do the foreign films, we're just going to assume that, like us, you guys don't speak the languages French, 
maybe some of you speak Spanish, but um, certainly not French, uh, unless, you know, we've got some of our Canadian listeners listening, in which case, hello, good friends, welcome. Sorry, we would play the trailer for you, but our ignorant American asses wouldn't understand it. So, there's going to be no trailers, there's going to be no clips. Once again, you stuck with Ryan and Jason for an hour and change. It's your fault for listening, There's nothing, really. uh... There's nothing more Canadian than an apology, Jason, so I'm sure they appreciate that. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry we don't have a trailer, eh? <laughs> All right, man. Well, uh, what do you say? You think where, sh- where should we start in discussing this film? What do you think? At the beginning! Let's start, start at, the at the beginning. beginning. So when the uh, film does start out at the beginning, we are greeted with a close-up of a canvas a white canvas that people use to sketch and to paint on and we very quickly see some charcoal sketching out an image on there and we cut to see that there are students in a classroom setting it's an art class and it's set certainly sometime in the past probably late 1800s just based on a lot of the costuming and whatnot i I don't know that they ever specifically say it in the film but, oh, they totally do. Oh, uh, well, movie, there you go. Ryan, take it away. Well, uh, their their ro- romance takes place in 1770, and uh, she's not dead yet, So, and she hasn't aged dramatically. So we're going to say this is in the uh, late 1770s, maybe a decade's gone by. Okay. Um, spoiler alert, as we end the film, uh, we see our uh, Eloise in a portrait with a young child. Um, being reminisced upon by our Marianne, the painter. So uh, the kid looks to be about eight or nine in said portrait. So yeah, we're going to say a decade's gone by. Uh, Was that something that popped uh, up like at the end where like in one of the final scenes and it gave us a date that I missed or something? No, no, I think it was in the very beginning. At the beginning. Um, (laughs) Well, that shows you how perceptive I am, audience. (laughs) (laughs) Where should we start? In the middle. Uh, Yeah, I... (laughs) One thing that uh, that stood stood out to me, the reason why I mentioned this and why I noticed that it was 1770 is because um, uh, immediately my mind went to, okay, this is right before the American Revolution. And then I was like, wait a minute, when was the French Revolution? So I had to look that up and it was the exact same time. I always forget the French Revolution was going on. Uh, They were looking for their freedom, all Les Miserables like uh, at the same time we were looking for our freedom, all Hamilton like. So, uh, you know. A uh, lot of poofy shirts on both sides of the coast and uh, <laughs> a lot of pretentious uh, behavior. Um, so this took place uh, literally right before the French Revolution. Excellent. Excellent. Well, see, and, and here you go, listeners. I mean, you're getting film history and international history. I, I believe I said not a few moments ago that we were ignorant ass Americans. And I, I'm committed to demonstrating that to you through multiple examples over the course of this episode. It's too bad we don't have like a visual where we can just keep track via a system of checks. But anyway, so these students are in class and they are painting their subject, who is the teacher, a woman who looks to be maybe in her 20s or so, and she's uh, very ornately dressed in a, a green dress, I believe it is. And right off the bat, Ryan, one of the things that we begin to notice is that, you know, there's there's this theme of, of painting, right? You know, obviously uh, it centers around the crux of the plot and she's the art teacher. And it's fitting just because of how much this movie looks like a painting, right? 
beautiful film. Yeah. yeah, this film was shot in 8K, and it looks like it. Uh, I, I'm assuming they used RED cameras. Uh, those are kind of the go-to for higher resolutions like 8K. Uh, but yeah, this is a wonderfully beautiful film. Uh, beautifully colored, beautifully shot. Um, not very complicated uh, in, in the cinematography, but certainly effective. Uh, it evoked emotion when it needed to. Um, yeah. Absolutely. I, I, th- this is going to come out of left field. I don't know. I feel like when you picked this movie off the list... Um, there was kind of a hesitation in your voice, like, ah, oh, shit, Ryan's going to leave this. One. <laughs> but, uh... No, dude, it wasn't that. You specifically said that. If you go back and listen to that episode, I said, Ryan, do you have a description? You got through three quarters of the description and then said, Jason, am I going to hate you? Those, that's verbatim, well, dude. I listened well, to that episode recently. <laughs> here we are uh, a couple weeks later, and I most definitely do not hate you. Uh, okay, Someday I'm going to... Someday I'm going to paint your portrait, my friend, because ah. I love you for introducing me to this film. Uh, this was a great, great movie. I loved this movie. And uh, as you go along, I will explain why. <laughs> Excellent. So from there, we have the kids and they're obviously sketching their teacher. One of the kids looks behind her, notices that there's a painting back there, and it's a picture of a lady on fire. And so she turns around and ask the teacher what is that I, I think she delivers some sort of cross response like oh like you shouldn't have asked about that or something like that uh, but either way she ends up saying that that picture is called portrait of a lady on fire and that's where we get obviously the title of the film from and I think it kind of sets up you know two of the different themes the first one we talked about is of course just how uh, the theme of painting reflects the visuals and the cinematography and the way it's presented. Um, but, you know, specifically just with the title of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, this is a very woman-centric film, right? It, it's it's, a, it's yes. a story about women. It's a story told by women, female writer-director. Um, and, and, and I'm sure, Ryan, you probably picked up on this too, but there are no men in the film whatsoever until the very end, and it's like one guy, I Correct. think it's when he picks up uh, Marianne, the, the protagonist, to like take her back or yep. whatever. Um, and yeah, and, and maybe a couple in the crowd at the theater uh, in the very end as well, but yeah. Yeah, This yeah. is all women, and yet, uh, and, and again, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll kind of harp on this a little more as we get down the line, but um, as much as this was, this was a, a movie uh, by women, uh as well, uh, right down to the uh, director. Um, this was her fourth film, Celine Sciamma. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm butchering her name. Sciamma? <laughs> Sciamma? I don't know, man. We're horrible Celine. with names. We know this. She's a fucking rock star, is what she is. And uh, the cinematographer is a woman. This mm-hmm. was all acted by women. Uh, and it's a story, uh, you know, uh, obviously lesbian uh, and queer love. Uh, so it's very LGBTQ oriented. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet... Uh, I found this to be a very relatable story. I was not, a, as a man, never did was I kind of brushed to the side or felt that I was less than. Um, in fact, quite the contrary. This is a uh, transcendent story about love. And um, love is love is love is love. And, and I think that it, it, that's one of the reasons why I just really love, love this movie. Uh, it's how pure it is. <laughs> pure of a tale it was and it cut yeah. down to uh, way past any stereotypes that one would have or any uh 
it kind of just got, you know, it's, it scratched past the surface and got right down to the core of what, what romance is. And, uh, man, was it powerful. Good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is, this is a solidly made film. This is not a, you know, quote unquote women's film in terms of, you know, something that can only be enjoyed by women. Like, I think like, I really did enjoy it. I, I admittedly, my, my one criticism is that I did find it to be a bit slow. Um, it just, it's a very, very quiet, slow moving film. And, yes. No, uh, it totally is. But deliberate. Yeah. Uh, yeah. De- it's so deliberate. And yeah. so this movie had some serious uh, diving bell in the butterfly vibes to me, where okay. which was also a French film, uh, wherein um, the 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 space that the actors were allowed to have between lines of dialogue uh, sometimes seemed like an eternity. Um, you know, one person would say something and then there'd be a huge breath. And then another person would say something. Yeah. And as such, it felt, you know, like it should have felt like a slower movie than it did. But I appreciated it because what happened in those beats in between the lines uh, was so powerful. And it gave the actors a lot of room to to just be and to embrace their characters. And um, man, yeah. This is one of those movies, uh, like Diving Bell, I think I said the same thing on that episode, that this movie should, on paper, should not have worked. Correct. It should not have been, at least least it should not have been as good as it was, you know, but this was uh, a fantastic film, and so much credit goes to everyone that worked on this film, because uh, they just made magic happen, really. I mean, on on screen, this is what a movie should be, and, and so... You know, the the script, I don't even know how long the script would have been for this, because like you said, you know, you're looking at a two hour film, but maybe, uh, you know, there's there's uh, a solid hour of dialogue. So there's maybe. there's uh, I, I, yeah, I'm going to go on, you know, uh, on a limb here and say that uh, there's an hour of just, you know, watching these people be on screen. But it's captivating, dude. These actresses <laughs> were phenomenal. Definitely. Definitely. So. Like I said, uh, you know, I do think it's a very sort of women-centric film, and and we're going to go into more of that along the way, and the ways in which I think that it differs, uh, and the way, you know, that it's, the way that it tells its story is going to be very different than you or I would tell a similar story, and we're going to go into more of that as we go along. So, and the one thing that I do want to mention as well, Ryan, is, uh, you know, we we, we talked very briefly about this uh, before, before the show, at the top of the show, but like, the cinematography we've acknowledged is wonderful. And I was sitting there. So there's a scene early on, for example, where they show like the ocean and it, and it's at dusk. And not only do you get the sort of beautiful pink skyline, but there's almost this sort of like pastel pink sheen that's like going across the water. And I was really curious as to how they were able to get that. Some of the, you know, like the just incredible aquamarine. Like I was constantly enthralled by the water and the color of the water yeah. and the way they were right. able to shoot that. Um, but it sounds like you have a little bit of insight into how they were able to accomplish that. Yeah. I mean, uh, a lot of the uh, coloring techniques that you'll see um, uh, post-production colorists use uh, oftentimes, you know, what I like to do is go into the shadows and go into the whites whatever they're showing you on the screen that's white, whatever they're showing you on the screen that's shadowy, uh, that, that's, you know, supposed to be black, uh, and see how it's pigmented or, or see how it's tinted in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and then you'll start to get a, a handle on how the rest of the uh, image is colored as well. Also, skin tones 
Uh, we all know what skin looks like, um, and we have an idea of of how that could be tra- portrayed on film. But you'll notice uh, there's a lot of oranges and teals. Um, the sky, uh, for example, we know what the sky looks like. Uh, there's definitely different hues of blue that the sky gives, but none that I've seen uh, like this film would portray it uh, in a lot of teals. This was a color scheme that was really popular a few years ago. Um, everybody was using this orange and teal uh, coloring. There were a lot of what are called LUTs or lookup tables that people use when they uh, think of them as like uh, a filter uh, that you could drop on a picture. Uh, there's uh, filters like that for video as well uh, and, and film. And uh, it's kind of a shortcut way to color something uh, that people make little profiles and, and it makes a certain image look a certain way for uh, consistency. So this brought a lot of that orange and teal look back in a big way. Um, it was overdone uh, quite a bit. Uh, but man, I was this was way more subtly done. They, they you know, kind of eased it in. But yeah, a lot of. Uh, a lot of powerful stuff. But then the stuff in the castle um, where they live uh, was very more, uh, very much more bleak. And the whites were white, I guess, to kind of show the loneliness and isolation of that existence uh, versus their time spent on the beach was hypersaturated. Uh, so, you know, you start to break the film apart on a scene by scene basis and you could see uh, potentially how the cinematographer and director wanted to evoke feeling through color and, and uh, cinematography as well. Really good stuff, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when the story kicks off proper, we are introduced to our protagonist, young woman named Marianne. We'll learn very quickly that she's an artist. And she's riding in a boat. And and, the, and I really liked the direction on this opening scene. You know, I think that's one of the, the cool things about the movie is that uh, – it did a good job it, because, like we said, it's a slower film, so it did a good job of being slow when it was supposed to be slow. But we do see early on with that whole boat ride that, you know, the the director doesn't have just one scene because, you know, with doing the handheld photography and just the howling of the wind and the crashing of the waves, like, it was pretty intense, you know? Like, you get, yeah, you get, yeah, you no get the sense that, like, if she really wanted to do a horror movie or some, you know, weird Robert Eggers-style shit, like, she totally could. Um, obviously based on the content in this film, it doesn't seem like that's probably her speed, but, um, but yeah, you know, she did uh, a really good job of handling that just as much as she did the soft, quiet stuff. So Marianne is dropped off on this Island. And again, you know, we get some, some really cool sound design, which you touched on earlier with regards to like the breaths in between the dialogue and whatnot. Um, when she's dropped off, it becomes very quiet. Uh, but we do hear the wind you know, it's not like the howling, crashing wind from when she was just on the boat right there. But she, uh, the, the the director just lets the sound of the wind and just uh, this sort of, you know, slow shot of her walking up. And that also allows us as an audience the opportunity to kind of, you know, kick it down a little bit. You know, the gear, so to speak, you know. Uh, Drink it up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so it's going to bring everything down, kind of let people settle into this sort of slower pacing which, as we've said, you know, it's when you're making a film that is about painting and you want it to look like a painting, you know, it's probably not going to make too much sense to have a bunch of hyperkinetic action going on, right? So uh, it does match thematically in that respect. Now, speaking of, uh, you know, sort of softer, quieter moments, Ryan, this is one of the things that I really liked about this film, and I think this relates back to what we were saying about this being a woman centric film, which is just, there's just a, a very, there's a delicate and soft nature to it that really just wouldn't exist. If you, I, or any sort of male tried to approach this same material, like, 
Uh, like any male getting the same script, you know, the women are going to be much more sexualized, I'm sure, or, you know, we're going to look more at the intensity of the emotions, right? Because, I mean, that's just kind of by by natural disposition. I think it's fair to say that dudes tend to run more intense than women. Not that, you know, that's a strict binary thing, but, um, you know, I think by and large... Stay tuned. Uh, stay tuned for your friends and neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's... And, and, and Oh, man. Yeah, you guys got to stick around for that one. Part two of this podcast will run directly in contrast and show how a man would have made this film. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, we are going to go touch a lot more on that when we do get to that. Um, but, yeah, it was really... Jesus. And that was and that was what was really cool about, uh, as you touched on at the top of the episode, is, is pulling these two films is because yeah you're gonna get (laughs) a very uh polar opposite view of love and relationships from our next film in this dude neil labute like so anyways but but yeah so i mean it's it's, these these two films are literally the difference between making love for eight hours with three bottles of wine by candlelight or getting a ten dollar handy by the dumpster behind the (laughs) (laughs) 7-eleven very different ideas about love yeah for sure (laughs) um but at least with regards to this film with portrait of a lady on fire it's very soft you know that was that was just kind of like one of the 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 words that i kept coming back to soft intimate tense tender um you know whether you know whether you're talking about the way in which the uh actresses are maybe not so much the uh oh man i forget her name not marianne but uh heloise Uh, Heloise? maybe not her her character she was a little hard-edged but um but even down to just the way that they photographed the women you know it was it was it was very uh, again it was just very natural and elegant and uh you know it just it's it's (laughs) the opposite of like you know the 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 Oliver Stone approach from last episode or something, right? Who anytime he has, you know, he has like his vicious rape scene in Salvador, right? And it's very aggressive and in your face and like, yeah, you know, this is what's up, right? Uh, this film constantly was just okay, taking a step back, letting things exist, uh, and 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 yeah. the way that they shot the actresses too. I mean, they're both you know gorgeous women, um, but the way that they were shot, it just it really reinforced that they they. It gave them that classical sense of beauty, you know, as though they were women from back then where there was just, you know, the the level of attractiveness, especially because, you know, these days it's like more about like who can get, you know, the closest to naked without going over. Right. Um, Whereas back then, you know, it was really more just about the the elegance, the grace, the. you know, the, the power. Yeah. Yeah. The control all that sort of factor stuff. between our characters and how that kind of shifted over time. Uh, and again, I can't stress this enough. This was such a um, important part that you brought up that there's no men in this film. So mm. there's no contrast. So you're able to just appreciate uh, these women as people and, yeah. and, and this love story as a love story. There's no, uh, you know, contrasting uh, weird bde going on you know what i mean like this is just uh raw intimacy and understanding uh your your partner and and all of it and it's just man i I, like i said i i drank this up this is good stuff so here's here's a perfect example it's really very brief right but i think that it's illustrative of kind of what i'm talking about so there's a shot earlier on where it shows uh the main character marianne and I forget if she's looking at a book or whatever, but she's uh, posed naked in front of a fireplace. You know, she's kind of just sitting there and she's got her knees hunched up and like her arms are kind of 
um, like covering her breasts. Yeah, when she first gets to the castle off the boat and all her clothes are wet because she jumped off the boat to save her canvases that had gone overboard. And so uh, she hung her clothes uh, up to dry. And so now she's naked in the castle uh, all by herself. The man of the castle is in Milan, uh, where he's from, and is going to be taking her, uh, his bride-to-be, uh, Eloise, to Milan. Um, and uh, so yeah. while he's away, he sent this woman to paint um, his bride-to-be. I guess that was a custom back then, is to have a portrait painted of your bride for the wedding day of sorts yeah i think um, so but i want to go back because because i actually I, I i brought that up for a reason because one of the things that i wanted to say go, yeah, yeah. yeah is that so like when, when i was just explaining why she was naked because <laughs> <laughs> there's a reason you know yeah it yeah wasn't yeah exploitative. well no and that and that and yeah and that and that dovetails exactly into my point right which is that like normal i mean you know let's face it dude we're two straight white dudes and like yeah when you see a beautiful naked woman it's like yeah a beautiful naked woman right but there was like in this movie, like in that image, for example, like it, there was no element of lust that was associated with it. You know, I wasn't like it was right. one of those things like, oh, my God, that girl's so hot. I want to bang her, blah, blah, blah. It's just like it was like, wow, that's a really beautiful woman. Like, look at that beautiful form. Like it, it, it yeah, was it's art. Yeah, exactly. It was I, I don't want to say it wasn't sexualized, but it was there was just a different it, it had a different a different flavor to it again, just because of, I think, the the woman influence. Right. So one of the things that we uh, learn early on is that Marianne has been brought to this castle because she is supposed to uh, paint a picture of the daughter of the family, Heloise, who will talk about why she's brought over in in just a minute here. Um, We do learn right then, though, that previous artists have tried and failed. Part of this is because... Heloise is very difficult to paint because of the fact that she refuses to pose. And this is just going to sort of be a reflection of her character. She's kind of cross the whole time, you know, for most of the first half of the film. I don't think the scowl leaves her face uh, until we sort of, you know, understand why it's there. And then, you know, the relationship blossoms a little bit. Um, But, you know, she's not she's not there to make anybody's lives easy and just smile for the camera. And because of that, they they being the, the family, specifically the mother of the family, Heloise's mom, has to basically have the artist, Marianne, pretend that she's just there to go on these walks and just take walks with her down to the beach, basically, and hide the fact that she's there to paint her because if Heloise knows that she's there to paint her, she's not going to want to play ball. So that's kind of, you know, the main thing where about the movie where, again, you know, Marianne has to basically paint her, but not let her know that she's an artist. Obviously, it's going to grow more from there. One of the things we see early on is a painting, and it's a painting that the previous artist had tried to do, and you see that it's her entire body, but the face is completely smudged. And initially, we don't know specifically what's going on, right? We we will find out very soon, but you know, you're kind of left to question like, oh, okay, that's interesting. What was it? Was he just disappointed? Was she disappointed? Uh, you know, did they fall in love and then she dropped him, right? There's a, I, I, I really liked the way that they showed that and just kind of left it up to interpretation for a little bit until, you know, a little bit later when we see what's going on. From there, Ryan, uh, one of the things that I really liked about this is there's a lot of, there's a lot of little moments in this film that work for various reasons, whether they're touching, whether they're clever, whether they're just gorgeous, right? One of the things I really liked was the the sort of fake-out reveal 
of Heloise where it's uh, it's directly after she sees the painting and it does the shot, you know, like a lot of times when the say, you know, Queen of England is introduced, right? Like we spent 10 minutes at the beginning of the film talking about her and then, you know, we're finally going to greet her and it starts with like the bottom of her dress as she's walking down a hall, right? And then it kind of tracks back and then like goes up to like reveal the character. And so we get that same shot where it shows the bottom of this green dress and it's moving forward and we've just talked about Heloise and it tilts up and, you know, we expect that to be the character reveal and then it actually ends up that it's Marianne and she's carrying the dress and just moving it forward. Like, that was, that was kind of a funny little fake out just on uh, yeah, expectations. Yeah, that was cool. I, did, I honestly, actually, I, I didn't pick up on that, So, uh, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, so so that was a, that was a cool little moment. And then... I think, you know, playing on that, she like turns around, you know, a matter of seconds or, you know, minutes later. And then one of the interesting things is the way that they actually do introduce Heloise, because from there we see her come out and she's got this like cape that she's wearing and we follow her from behind and she ends up walking out of the castle. Marianne's kind of like, ah, what do I do? She just ends up kind of, you know, running after and following her. And then Heloise takes off like right towards the cliff. And for a moment, we're kind of tense because we just heard a story about how Heloise's older sister committed suicide because she didn't want to go through with her arranged marriage. And so, you know, for a moment, we're wondering if she's going to go ahead and take advantage of the opportunity to just immediately do the same. And then, you know, she stops at the last minute and then, you know, she turns back and we get to see her eyes that was another thing, you know, the both actresses, but especially Heloise, uh, just very striking eyes. And especially towards, you know, early on, like when they go on the walk and they have the face covering and it's just her eyes looking over the top and like they just constantly just beam out. Uh, lovely eyes. S- same uh, same dude, right? That was going to marry her sister. Uh, Heloise's sister is uh, going to marry her, right? She was yeah. uh, set up as more or less a replacement by her mother. Correct. Am I understanding that correctly? You absolutely do, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, and then shortly thereafter, we get a, you know, a minor ticking clock, shall we say, in that it's revealed that uh, Marianne's only going to be allowed to be there for six days, so she uh, needs to learn as much as she can about this girl, or at least her features, to be able to paint her very quickly when she's sleeping or whatever, uh, when she doesn't know, you know, when she's not looking or when she doesn't know at some point. And again, that's where we kind of get the uh, more of the reveals about, you know, the sister and the suicide attempt and the betrothal and all of that. And from there, we get to learn a little bit more about her because she kind of opens up a little bit as, you know, they're starting to develop a relationship. And she lets her know that she's just, you know, very upset by be having to be betrothed to this man. She has no say in who she's going to marry and, and, and that bothers her. All right. So Ryan, let me ask you this. Cause I, I was kind of curious a little bit myself about this. So when she says that she's just upset Heloise, that is because she doesn't have any say in who she's going to marry. Do you think that she knows that she's gay at that point? Or do you think, and then, and then do you think that that's like an active reason that she's upset that she's getting betrothed to this man or do you think that it's just kind of one of those things where she doesn't something doesn't feel right? You know, she's, she doesn't 100 percent know and has the awakening through her relationship with Marianne, which which do you think that is? 
I think it's the latter, uh, and I'll tell you why. I don't think this is a full-blown lesbian movie. This is either a bi or queer movie, just because we find out um, that uh, we find out later in the film that uh, Marianne has been in a previous relationship and been with child before. Um, and been in love and all of that. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, that was a conversation that they had around the time when their uh, maidservant was uh, found to be with child. And uh, that leads to a pretty bonkers bananas uh, uh, scene we'll talk about here <laughs> shortly. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I think that, uh, you know, uh, Marianne uh, has uh, admits later in the film to have been in love and, and uh, have been with child and all of that and, and had uh, taken a man into her bed. Uh, we also find out that Eloise later in the film has a child and all of that and looks to be just fine. Um, so I think this is more of a story about love and just love being pure and surpassing gender than it does uh putting labels on it and saying that this is a uh, uh you know a lesbian that's being suppressed by a man and and all of that and not being able to be gay. Yeah. So that's how I took it anyways. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. 100%. Don't even need to uh, elaborate at all. So, yeah, and uh you know again, so getting back to the film because of the situation, Marianne has to hide that she's a painter. And we get this kind of, you know, lightly tense scene where she's up in, you know, the attic or the office or whatever it is. And she's trying to start painting the green dress. And then Heloise comes in and, you know, she's able to hide most of it, but she still has like a little bit of green paint on her hand. So she's constantly just, you know, trying to hide that. And uh, it's not that. Yeah, uh, this was a uh, this was a time in the film that I said uh, even in the 1770s, women still needed pockets. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> these poor girls they can't get pockets, and uh, so she had hand, paint on her hand. She had nowhere to stick her hand to hide hide the paint uh, to show her true uh, reasons for being there. And so uh, I was like, man, these women in their pockets, man, they're still getting hosed on that in uh, 2021. <laughs> Yeah, but she does end up finishing the painting pretty quickly from 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 that point forward. And she lets the mom know that it's done. Mom wants to see it, but Marianne, now having developed a little bit of a relationship with Heloise, it, it hasn't gotten romantic at this point or anything yet, uh, she wants to show her first. I'm sure they're starting to feel feelings for one another, but it hasn't, hasn't come to the surface yet. And so uh, Marianne wants to present it to Heloise. She does, and Heloise hates it. Uh, she's basically like, there's no feeling here. It's not personal. Basically like, you know, this doesn't feel like someone that knows me, you know, that's not me. And she even has like a smile on her face, you know, which is, and so, you know, she kind of questions Marianne's decision-making. Marianne is rightfully disappointed, angry. And then she, and then she does something which is pretty cool, which is she smudges that face in, in exactly the same way that the previous artist did, which we saw the results of in the picture that she sees in the attic. So, that was a that was a very cool way to divulge that piece of information. Now, from there, the mom gets really upset because she's like, "What? Again, hire another artist and they deliver exactly the same thing and I don't get a portrait." And she goes to dismiss her, but Heloise interjects. Uh, obviously at this point they've they've, you know, again, it hasn't come to the surface, but they do have those feelings, they do recognize there's something there, and Heloise actually says that she's going to pose for Marianne, which is obviously a big deal. Now, Ryan, from there, uh, we're introduced to this young maiden character, and uh, 
it, it felt a little, I don't know, unnecessary maybe or, or tacked on a little bit. I didn't, I didn't quite understand the necessity for that character and the whole kind of, you know, very small subplot about her getting pregnant and them basically trying, trying, trying to abort it. Right. That's, that's, that's what they're trying to do. Well, man, this was such a small film that if you didn't have a third wheel in there somewhere to kind of break it up or give these other two women someone to talk to um, That's true, yeah. other than each other, man, this film would have felt so claustrophobic. I think that that was just out of necessity, but it worked. I mean, it, it played nicely yeah. and it gave them something to do. Um, it also gave us what I feel to be perhaps the most beautiful five to ten seconds in cinematic uh, history that we've seen in a few years, which is that silhouetted walk to the bonfire yeah, uh, that against gorgeous. that beautiful sunset. And uh, just that one shot, man, I, it's so simple and it's so stupid. And I feel weird even harping on it because of how basic it is, but it's gorgeous, dude. It yeah. really is. No, I made a note of it right here too. So, you know, it stood out to both of us. So there's gotta, I'm sure there's something there. And I, yeah. yeah and I really liked where it went from there too, because you know, they end up from they from from there they go to this uh, bonfire that's on the beach, right? And it was kind of again sort of like a cool little fake out moment, much like the introduction with the with the dress that we just talked about, where you know yeah. they get there. Did you the, set up why they're going? The maid servant got uh, got knocked up. No, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. To... Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So the 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 maid servant, you know. Uh, Marianne's talking with her and and they're confiding in each other and they've kind of gotten this bond because um, the on remember Eloise doesn't know, you know, at the start of the film that she's, you know, she's being set up for this marriage. She doesn't know that she's going to get her portrait done. So they're sneaking around and the maidservants in on it. So they, they kind of have this uh, little bond uh, between Marianne and her. And um, then, of course, Eloise finds out, as you said, and then they then it's the three of them. And it's uh, the, the mother uh, leaves to go to Milan to go set up things for the wedding and whatnot and uh, says, I'll be back in a few days. You could pose for your portrait. But when I be when I'm back, it better be fucking finished. So now we're left with our three amigas and um, we find out that the maidservants uh, with child or hasn't had her uh, monthly. I think is how they phrase it. So uh, they first off try a bunch of home remedies to try to move things along or uh, abort the child or of some kind or make things pass. And uh, none of that seems to work. So then they go to this bonfire to go speak to um, one of the elder stateswomen, I guess, from the village or some kind of medicine woman or, or someone in the know that kind of knows about these things and how to get shit done. And uh, that gives us uh, the scene I, I talked about on the way to the bonfire. And it gives us a really great uh, scene where these women are all kind of amongst themselves chatting and talking and, uh, and uh, they all start to chant and then they start to sing in a choir and uh, in a way that, they seem to have done many times because uh, they all seem to know their parts pretty well automatically, <laughs> but it's beautifully done, man. Yeah. Beautifully shot, beautifully performed, beautifully sung. And uh, I'll let you take it from here. Cause that gives us um, the title of the film in this scene as well. It does. It does. And, and, and the sort of fake out moment that I was talking about is like, I had this really brief moment because when, when the, before like the sort of acapella song kicks in, there's just this sort of like weird humming that happens and it's like sort of one note and then like 
more more humming comes in like a different pitch and it almost sounds kind of like you know like the when the cults start like oming like to like the elder god yeah. or something you know and you get these like this three to five seconds of you're like oh shit dude like like did uh, did they bring in robert eggers to do the second half of this film and then you know all of a sudden like then i think it's like the clapping breaks out or something and then they like start like you know singing in earnest um, it's almost like the uh, what is it the Byzantine monks or whatever it's yeah. called uh, yeah the, the chant used to from like, back in the day yeah 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 <laughs> when, very similar to like that or <laughs> when somehow you know, chanting even, uh, monks were able to break into like the Billboard top forty I still never will understand <laughs> that bro like I like yeah. even Enya like kind of pushes shit but like okay I I, I understand I can I can remember a time in the nineties where enough people liked. Enya sounding shit and had just discovered, you know, meditation and like Reiki and stuff like that. But like the whole Byzantine monks chanting and then uh, enough to have sequels, uh, you know, chant one wasn't enough. They had to have chant two and three and like so many of them, dude. And it was funny because they had that really like they had that really cheesy cover art where it looked like a bunch of flying like the flying toaster screensaver. But instead of flying toasters, it was monks. And, and yeah, it was, it was a weird, weird movement, man. Nineties had some silly shit, man. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I didn't get into the, now that's what I call monks, uh, series that you <laughs> ordered all of those from time life music. So, uh, I don't really know much about it, but I do know that there was a weird period in time where, yeah, we get the monk stuff. We also had like Lord of the dance. Remember the Celtic, uh, dancing that was really popular. Oh, for a uh, and, uh, Michael Flatley with, yep. Yeah. yeah. What the fuck was that? <laughs> <laughs> I think, dude, I think these cats were just really good at marketing, dude, because yeah, like, it's like, <laughs> I, love, I love the whole concept of like the, you know, whatever that like Irish line dancing is. It's like someone was like, I want to dance, but I only want to move half my body. What you got for me? <laughs> Flatly was like, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i just think uh everyone was just really sick of boy bands and limp biscuit we needed something a little different and they offered it to I, us they honestly did on a platter we bought it I, I would like to go back i'll bet you that came before then because i remember really you think so dude i remember listening I, i'm pretty sure the second limp biscuit album came out when i was in i know for sure it came out when i was in high school i, I forget if it was like sophomore okay. but yeah no i'm i think that came a little bit beforehand well Faith, I think, dropped around 98, I'm going to go out on a limb and say. And uh, that was also, uh, you know, the height of a lot of boy band shit that was going on at that time with the Backstreet Boys was starting to blow up around 98, 97. Um, So I'd have to double check, but I think those monks were right in that sweet spot. Okay. I don't know. Be worth a gander. Yeah. uh, Look it up. (laughs) By the way, listeners, you don't know this. Ryan, huge fan of boy bands loves boy bands like <laughs> literally half of what he listens to on spotify is boy bands i mean you got your nsync you got your 98 degrees you got your backstreet boys that is ryan's shit so if, if any of you fans listening ever want to curry favor with ryan the best thing you can do is hit him up on twitter at the ryan Seabold and send him quotes from 90s boy bands lyrics and, you know, should we get any? We'll post the best ones on our personal Twitter. <laughs> you fucking. Uh, listen. <laughs> they were giving away puka shells with box in boxes of cereal back then. Uh, I live in Florida. So, you know, you just had your shirt unbuttoned all the time. And 
Uh, large gym fans were uh, everywhere. So you always had a breeze blowing on you. You looked good like you were in a music video. I don't know, man. Uh, you just got to go with it. <laughs> I love it, man. I love it, dude. We're, we'll, we'll move along without going into your like deep-seated fandom for the Spice Girls. So anyways. Did I have bleached blonde tips? I don't know. Maybe I did. <laughs> did he have a? Per- Maybe I did. Did he have his own Spice Girl name? Perhaps. Hint: It was cumin. He was cumin spice. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm more of a paprika, but. <laughs> All right. So, the next day after this bonfire. Oh, and and by the way, let's just go ahead and mention at the end of that scene after the whole song. You know, uh, Marianne's staring at Heloise from across the bonfire. Heloise gets close to the bonfire and. Her dress catches on fire. So that's where we get the titular portrait of a lady on fire. Marianne's sort of staring at her transfixed while some people run over and, and fan the flames out of the dress. And, you know, she's. And, and Eloise had zero fucks to give about that. She just, like, <laughs> locked on, laser focus onto Marianne. Uh, we. We doing it soon. Like th- there's some serious fuck me eyes going yeah. on, some bedroom eyes going on, and uh, <laughs> at this point, to the point where her dress catches on fire and she doesn't care at all. Like, yep, <laughs> let it burn, let it burn right off. <laughs> Let's yeah. do this. Yeah, and so you know, the next day is where you know they kind of finally physically express it. You know, lightly at least, anyways. But you know, they're walking alone on the beach. Uh, there's a lot of you know light touching and you know fingertips kind of flittering back and forth across one another and you know but they eventually get to a sort of rock enclosure duck behind it and they kiss and you know they're finally able to express their emotions like you said coming off the coming off the previous night of some serious fuck me eyes and uh but it's a little bit much for Heloise and so she ends up running away um later at dinner Heloise does not want to eat whether she isn't hungry or just is kind of setting up an excuse for Marianne to go see her, you know, it could be debated, but either way, Marianne does in fact go see her in a room and they caress and, you know, uh, kind of like you mentioned before, Ryan, you know, that's where the director just kind of lets a lot of the sound effects of, you know, the heavy breathing do the, uh, shall we say heavy lifting? Uh, you know, it's not a, there's no graphic lesbian romance scene, um, you know, it's a, they just, uh, I forget if they, you know, tilt the camera away or whatever, but basically, you know, we just hear this heavy breathing and it's, uh, implied that they've, you know, made love off screen. So, uh, and then Ryan, uh, I was, I was interested in your, especially cause you kind of brought it up a little bit before. So immediately after that is when the, I guess it's, you know, whatever the witch doctor or the, the, the woman that knows about the abortion, um, she ends up doing the procedure on the young maiden. I thought it was in. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> sounds like you've got some. Uh, it sounds like I don't even need to set it up. Ryan, what'd you think about that scene? Yeah, I mean, ever seen a medieval abortion happen? That's, uh, <laughs> you know, this was. So, the, 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 our women in question, Marianne and Eloise, uh, accompany our handmaiden to, um, to said old woman doctor in the village to go get this procedure done. They bring her in and they lay her down. And this whole thing is handled like. No bigs. And uh, so she just lays down on the bed and spreads them and uh, in her, you know, long dress and they, you know, pull the dress up and whatnot. And and, uh, that old woman just dives on in with a poking stick and uh, to go to the biz and on the bed 
is a baby and a, a toddler yep. just rolling around up by the face of the handmaiden, uh, you know, kind of playing and tugging on her dress and like, oh, what are you doing? Oh, nothing. Just an abortion. You know, <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? Get those kids out of there. Have a little fucking uh, reverence for what what's going on. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. like, hey, just in, then, just in case you didn't, just in case you forgot what we're doing here, here's a baby right in front of your face as uh, we yeah. just j- get up in there and jank it out. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> it was not handled with tender. If, if there's one thing that was not handled with tenderness in that movie, is that yeah <laughs> no that's that was the uh the renaissance version of how it started how's it going you know i mean <laughs> <laughs> but ryan uh <laughs> one th- one one thing i did like and and i'm pretty sure this is the case so i i'm pretty certain that just based on the look of the baby that it was a male baby and if that's the case then that's the first instance of a male appearing on screen as a toddler. So, you know, is there, is, okay. is there maybe a little bit of, of subtle commentary about, you know, d- dudes being kind of, you know, not immature right there. Yeah, who's to say, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Getting you know, in and the then, way. And, yeah. And then that's to go with just the inherent sort of, uh, like, hold your breath anxiety of, you know, this this newborn baby, you know, toddling around on a bed in front of a woman who's having actively having an abortive procedure. Uh, that was a yeah. that's not a, a juxtaposition I, I had seen before, to be completely honest. She uh, took it like a champ. She did. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And Marianne was looking away and Eloise is like, come on, you got to take a peekity peek, you know? And, <laughs> and so uh, you got to you, no watch like you need to see this. I, I, don't, I don't know why she insisted on her seeing or her watching or whatever. Maybe it was out of um, support. Well, so and the handmaiden, because at this point they're all homies, uh, you know, so it's like, no, we're in this together kind of thing, like a show of unity. What did your what was your take on that? So I think there was any. Well, so I was wondering, it was kind of one of those things where I was wondering if it was kind of in a statement on the the procedure of abortion and about it being, you know, the the whole, you know, if you're if you're pro choice, then you subscribe to the idea that it's like a woman's body and, you know, a woman has the right to choose. And I was wondering if maybe it was her thing of like, okay, look, you know, like we do have this power, you know, we do get to make this decision for our bodies, but like, here's the ugly reality of what that looks like. And we need to like own up to that, you know, and not pretend that it's anything other than what it is. Could be. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's Um, up for debate. I don't think it's, you know, objectively one thing on the surface. No, no. Yeah. I was uh, more or less wondering exactly that if the director was trying to make a statement of some kind, or if it was just a show of unity amongst the, friends that were in this together, you know, kind of a bonding moment of a, um, you know, powerful situation. I think it was a way to make a statement on probably a controversial issue that can very quickly overwhelm anything else that you're trying to talk about. Right. Like that abortion conversation can happen so quickly and take up, you know, just be a, a black hole of, you know, there's no room to talk about anything else. So maybe it was just like, Hey, let's just do this thing real quick. Let's put it out there, but we don't want this movie to become, you know, um, uh, you know, we don't want people to think of this as the the abortion statement movie. You know, this is a movie about yeah, yeah, yeah. women and about a relationship that has this part that we're putting in there. That that, that was kind yeah, of yeah. I, I mean, to on it. it, it was the juxtaposition of is it a big deal or is it not a big deal? And if you're hiding away from it and you're not gonna w- look at it, right? It, then it becomes this weird taboo thing. Yeah, you give it that but power. If you embrace it and watch it. Correct. And if you if you you know. If you look and we're in this together and you realize that this is our power, this is our choice, 
Uh, this is something that we could take control of in a world, by the way, that they don't have a lot of control. I mean, let's not forget that uh, Eloise is being auctioned off as in an arranged marriage. So this is not a world where women have that power mm. um, in other areas of life. So the fact that they were able to take control of this situation uh, and then look it in the eyes and, and face it head on, uh, I think maybe was a little bit of a statement. And I thought that was kind of cool the way that they portrayed that in, in a, you know, an otherwise scene that uh, in a scene that otherwise maybe would have been brushed over by a lesser director. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And the other thing I want to ask you about, too, is is it sort of immediately follows that where. Heloise is a very detached character throughout this whole thing, right? Like she's constantly trying to pull away. She doesn't really have any like she's she's never really the initiator or instigator of anything. Right. But she does feel for some reason inspired to pose and recreate the abortion that just took place on the maiden and have Marianne yeah, paint right? it. And I honestly, I, I still again, may, I, I didn't come to a conclusion beforehand right now. And just saying it out loud, I'm wondering if maybe it's a further reinforcement of what we just mentioned, where it's like, hey, you know, not not only are we going to take control of this by, like, watching it, but we're also going to, like, do, you know, a vignette and a, and a painting and, like, is, you know, is that maybe their way of just really owning this thing? Could be. Yeah, I, I'm i not certain. I, I did note that, um, you know... Throughout my time on the interwebs and social medias, you know, you see and come across a lot of paintings, whether it be Renaissance paintings or Enlightenment paintings, a lot of paintings from different eras where um, the subject matter in said painting is very what the fuck esque. <laughs> and this was kind of a behind the scenes look at how maybe some of those played out. I don't know. Like, I've yeah. seen so many paintings in my life where it's like, what the fuck inspired this? You know, like what are all these people doing in this fucking painting? And then did they pose for this in such a way that they had to hold this in for, for a considerable period of time. And then here we are and they show us, you know, like this was a moment that they shared that they wanted to document and, uh, and, and remember uh, something they did together or brought them together in a uni way of unification where they took power over their bodies. And uh, again, uh, to reiterate, uh, at a time when they weren't given said power over much of anything. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, maybe they just wanted to document that moment that they felt powerful when they left that yeah. uh, scene together. That's the only thing I could think of because it was a little off-putting, like, here, paint. Paint me real quick. We're going to do this. Uh, <laughs> paint me giving a, you know, doing the thing like uh, so. And this is where my penis gets in the way, too, because as a man, it's it was a little off putting to not the abortion scene that I appreciated for for what it was in the way that we talked about it. But the painting of it and, and readdressing it was like, ooh, wait, what? But then, you know, you had to let it sink in. And hey, uh, this, you know, ne isn't necessarily. Uh, a man's movie made this isn't made by a man so it's not some of these things maybe aren't me for me to understand directly but that's how i took it yeah yeah i think like i said if pushed i think it's just them owning the shit out of it you know like sure like yeah. it's, it's the equivalent because like, i mean i i can't imagine there's photographs at the time right like this is no. this price so yeah so so that would be the equivalent of like yeah bitch take my picture and put it out there here i am doing it what you got yeah right yeah 
Yeah, yeah they, they it was a, a maybe an empowering situation. Yeah. They felt emboldened. This was also, I think, uh, and if I'm skipping ahead, please uh, forgive me, but I think this was around the time that they were reading poetry and playing cards together around mm-hmm. the bonfire as well uh, in a show of unification and friendship and love. And it was the first time that card scene I documented was the first time that I noticed that Eloise smiled. Mm-hmm. Prior to this, she was very stoic. Um, even when she agreed to the painting um, and, and to pose and all of that, uh, Marianne had the hardest time getting her to crack a smile. Eloise was very stoic and, and uh, you know, a little disgruntled about the sitch and the whole thing. And, and the card scene was the first time that when they were playing uh, cards and then reading poetry uh, and a story uh, to each other, then that was the first time I, I noticed that she was showing happiness as an emotion. Nice, man. Nice. Yeah. Well, and so there's, and I know I've asked you for like two things, but there's one other thing that I want to ask you because there was like sort of just three things back to back where I was just like, huh, I'm not 100% sure exactly what's going on there. Um, but the whole thing with like the the lady in white, which which I believe was like Heloise in white. Uh, the, yeah. Yeah. So she has like a vision of her there. And, and then like, you know, it, they, they basically do a callback where, you know, when Marianne's leaving, she turns back and she sees her there. But I don't think it really comes back, does it? Do you know what that was? So my take on that, and I might be way off, but I think this harkens back to what I was just talking about, which is the uh, telling of the story around the campfire. So I'm I'm not in any way, shape, or form a Greek scholar. Uh, I know. Surprise, surprise. but um, skimming the surface and kind of trying to pay attention to what they were saying and doing some basic uh, lookups on the old interwebs, um, what I can take from that is that this is the story of Orpheus and y- your Eurydice. I'm butchering this, uh, but <laughs> again, we do. not a Greek scholar, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so, but but uh, so these were two like star-crossed lovers or whatnot. Eurydice died. And Orpheus uh, was given, I guess, one last chance to say goodbye uh, before she passed on to the afterlife of sorts. Orpheus had to do with like the um, Argonauts, like Jason and the Argonauts, and he was an adventurer of sorts. And uh, his wife passed away from, I believe it was a snake bite. And Orpheus um, had to go to the land of the dead uh, or was given a choice to go to the land of the dead to um, get her back. And there was something in that story where they mentioned that if he went back to get her, then he was a lover. But if he did not and chose to embrace her spirit and her memory, then he was a poet. And so my take on that was white sheet ghost uh, lady was um, was get was basically because this was all kind of towards the end as their relationship was more or less winding down. Mm-hmm. So Marianne sees a ghost version of sorts of Eloise, and my take on that was this was more or less a um, an example that she could either live the poet's life, the artist's life, and embrace that memory of her being virginal and white and pure or go past it and go be a lover, go take Eloise every chance she could until they're 
eventual goodbye had to come and they had to part ways. So do you, would you rather end it now? Well, it's easy and, and have your memories uh, for what they are and uh, end it on a good note. Or do you want to just ride this thing into the ground until it crashes <laughs> and burns and live the lover's life? Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that was, yeah, that made perfect sense. And it also, wrote- so that was, that was kind of portrayed and talked about and discussed amongst the, the women, um, uh, in the context of that story. And then we were kind of shown that this was all kind of playing out between them too. Yeah. Like it was all very metaphorical. Yeah. Because basically what happens is Marianne's time is officially coming to an end because, the the mom announces that she's coming back tomorrow, or it's announced that the mom's right. coming back tomorrow. So that means that Marianne's going to have to leave, and the two girls fight about their future. And and to your point, you know, like the the story, Marianne wants Heloise to you know leave her husband and and have them live together as you know girlfriends or whatever they're allowed to relationship they're allowed to have at that time, uh, publicly, privately, what have you, or. Uh, you know, like you say, just split apart and never see each other again. And Heloise is kind of very practical about it in that she knows that they can't be together. But Marianne is bitter about that. And then that night, right. uh, you know, they're they're together upstairs and with everything kind of understood that this is coming to an end. Uh, Heloise asks Marianne to do a sketch of her uh, in the book that they've been reading. Uh, she specifically asks her to do so in page 28. And that's gonna gonna come to a callback here in just a minute. So you know the film the film kind of well that aspect of the story because we do have a couple time jumps always our favorite right Ryan um, but uh, they work in this film <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the you know the film's wrapping up their time together is kind of finished this is where we see a fully grown man for the first time and pretty much the only time he's there to pick up Marianne she you know boards up the pictures and she's getting ready to take them back. Now, Ryan, this is another thing where maybe I missed it or maybe it's open to interpretation. But, like, do, do we know exactly what pictures she took back? Because I, I was wondering if there was supposed to be some sort of insinuation that, like, the mom made her take the portrait back with her because she didn't approve of their relationship or something. Um, or, you know, did she just take the portrait of a lady on fire one back with her? Is it not important? I'm that's what I, I mean. That's the way it. I took it. <laughs> yeah, I I just took it as the uh, the the portrait of a lady on fire okay. one that she took. Okay, okay, fair enough. Yeah. So the mom does go the ahead. The one that we see at the beginning of the film. Yeah. That the yeah. art student had taken out. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So the mom kicks Marianne out, and uh, you know that's where we get the moment where we talked about where you know she turns around at the last minute and sees the the woman in the white dress, which to your point. The the spirit was the one where they broke up and kept the memories, right? Yes. When when they had turned, yeah. So I think so. So just based on that, right? If you're given a story between, you know, or if you're given a choice rather in this story between, you know, the lover or the spirit, and the spirit is, you know, you're gonna call it off and just enjoy the memories. I guess that was probably just a visual metaphor for the fact that they they chose the life of the spirit instead of the lovers and called it off. Right. Got it. So, yeah, and then we get sort of wrap-up of the film proper. Uh, We return to the art school. Marianne's the teacher. And from there, you know, we get two sort of brief scenes. Uh, The first is that Marianne goes to an art exhibit where she sees a portrait of Heloise, which, as you mentioned at the top of the episode, she's got a child in that picture. 
Uh, but the other thing that we notice about the picture is that she is holding that book that they would read from, uh, Marianne and Heloise, that is, open to page 28, which is obviously the page that she asked her to sketch on. So, you know, a, a sort of nod to their relationship and a way to express her love for her, even though they couldn't be together, you know, reminding her that their relationship meant a lot to her. And then... And... Go ahead. Okay, go ahead. No, no, no. You got this. Go for it. It wasn't just by happenstance that she was at this art exhibit. She was there portraying her own piece, uh, Marianne was, and that piece was, in fact, Orpheus and uh, Eurydice. Right. And the um, uh, person at the uh, kind of walking by her painting, uh, admiring it or whatever, or maybe he was uh, some kind of... Um, art uh, connoisseur or whatnot uh, says, you know, I've never seen it portrayed this way uh, between Orpheus and Eurydice uh, that usually you see either the act of the death of the snake bite um, and, and it be a violent scene or you see it be a sad scene and, and uh, Orpheus is grieving. Uh, but he said, this is the only time I've ever seen them face each other head on as if they're saying goodbye. Right. So again, another callback to that, um, that poem that they were uh, that Greek you know myth that they were reading and and uh, it all kind of ties together, which is why I that's why I kind of saw the angelic version of Eloise as kind of a metaphor for choosing love or or memories of or whatnot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then from there we get the final scene, which is Marianne going to a theater performance, and. Uh, I, I had to look this up. I didn't. I didn't know it right, but it was actually a, a performance of Vivaldi's Four Seasons, and Heloise is watching it. And as she watches it, she just becomes really overwhelmed with emotion. Marianne is watching her from the balcony across the way, and the director just kind of lets the camera sit on Heloise in a close up, and we see her responding to the emotions. And Ryan, maybe you picked up on this. I didn't, and again, it was pointed out when I, when I happened to uh, look up this this final fact here, which is that the song that is being performed that they're both listening to and that Heloise responded yep. to was a song yep. that Marianne played on her harp, which we didn't mention in this episode. Right. But yeah, there's a scene yeah. or two where she's playing a harp, and I guess so. You know where? Well, she she even because uh, uh, at one point. That's one of the the begin. That was one of the first bonding moments between Eloise and Marianne was the playing of the uh, harpsichord or the piano or whatever yeah, it was right, that they right, were right. on. Um, Eloise had uh, mentioned that she had never heard a concert uh, performed uh, in any way, and Marianne's like bullshit. Like, <laughs> let me show you how to, this gets done, and went you know full Bill and Ted's beef oven on it and played this. Uh, of all these four seasons and as she's playing the seasons um, and this was actually really cool to me. This is why it stood out because I've, we, uh, you know, it's a very recognizable piece of music you hear come up in classical uh, references from time to time, but uh, I had never heard it broken down in such a way that the meaning or symbolism of different uh, parts of the song, like the thunder, uh, then you hear the birds and the bugs kind of reacting to the oncoming storm and then the storm comes and on and on. And she kind of breaks it down each part to show the symbolism and what it, you know, the music represents as it gets more intense or more mellow and uh, kind of broke, broke it down. So that kind of stood out. And then when you hear it again in the end, it kind of ties it all together. And, you know, we have this sentimental moment where uh, 
you know, mm-hmm. they're being uh, Eloise is being, you know, sen- uh, sentimental and remembering it. And then Marianne's kind of creeping from the balcony <laughs> and not saying shit. She mentions this is the last time she ever saw her as well, which is kind of sad, but it is. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, the director just sort of cuts away from the close up, you know, mid mid emote, if you will. And that's the end of the film. So really interesting film. Definitely, you know, a little bit outside of our typical wheelhouse. But then again, we don't really have a wheelhouse at this point, I guess, because we've really just looked at every kind of film. Right. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. uh, Very. I mean, this podcast is very esoteric, Jason. (laughs) You don't say. (laughs) (laughs) Do we know what you'd call it? (laughs) Do we review cinema on said podcast? Might have a good time. We do. Wow. Yes. Yep. <laughs> you know what else we do on this podcast, Ryan? We ascribe adjectives to films. So why don't you give me your three? We do. Uh, so this one I have as deliberate. Mm. Uh, I felt that every choice that was made by the director, by the cinematographer, by the actors, by uh, everybody in this movie, uh, right down to the music, the sound effects, everything was very, very deliberate. Um, they tell you right in the very beginning. Um, when Marianne is teaching her class and that first opening scene and they dig out the painting or whatever, she's teaching her art class, as you described. Um, she's telling her students what to look for. She's like, look at my hands. Don't just paint me. Don't just paint my dress. Look at this. Look at my neck. And she's almost telling me as the viewer to pay attention to these subtle details. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I kind of was like, okay, like I'm watching. What do you got? And sure as shit, they're like, See, I told you to look like I'm going to give you some shit. And so I really enjoyed that. Also, I have relatable. Um, This was uh, I've said this many times throughout the show. This was uh, as much as it was a, um, you know, a a gay, queer, lesbian uh, love story. It was also a love story. And I think that uh, it's beautiful that we're getting finally getting to a point in our culture where many of us are starting to realize that love is love and it can surpass these things. And these stories are uh, kind of above that. And, um, you know, as the movie went on, falling in love is falling in love. We've seen a love story a million times. It was the goodbye that hit me. That was what was relatable to me because uh, I've been in many situations. We all have, whether it's summer camp as a kid or a summer crush uh, that you have or you're moving away uh, to some new place or you're, or you're, you're just going through a breakup or whatever. Uh, there's many times, uh, many relationships that I've been in where, you know, it's over or, you know, it's coming to an end, uh, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. And you have a choice to make. Do you proceed? Do you spend your last moments with that person till the bitter end? Or do you call it quits and make it easy on yourself and just live with those memories? Um, that story, uh, was something that, uh, really drove the movie home for me. And so, um, yeah, very relatable. And uh, this kind of ties into that very point. So I'll leave you with this transcendent. Again, this movie transcends, um, you know, a lot of convention. This movie transcends what it should have been or could have been. If you were to hand me the script, I would have said meh. But the way it was uh, packaged and delivered and acted and everything, it just kind of transcended every uh, possible outcome of what this movie should have been for me personally. I was like, man, this was. This far outweighed or, or surpassed, uh, you know, on paper what what I, I thought this movie was going to be. Even when I was watching the trailer and like studying about it and stuff going into it, I was like, eh. And then afterwards, I was like, whoa. And everybody was right. This is one of the best films 
uh, from last year. I can't recommend this more. Excellent, man. Yeah, really lovely descriptions there, man. Love those. Love those. Uh, I'm going to hit you up with my three. The first one is understated. You know, it's just it's a really quiet film. It doesn't really it doesn't it doesn't throw a whole ton at you, you know, like the way that it'll just have a single sound effect. Like I said, we talk about that wind or, you know, the creaking of a boat or whatever it is. And even, you know, that's what I meant by deliberate. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah, absolutely. And just focusing on, like you say, you know, the space between the dialogue and the breathing and things like that. And uh, just a lot of really subtle motions and techniques utilized throughout here. Uh, the other thing is, as we've talked about, should be no surprise, gorgeous. It's just an absolutely flat-out gorgeous film. It's gorgeous to look at. Uh, the, the the imagery is gorgeous to look at. The colors are gorgeous to look at. Uh, the people, the women are gorgeous to look at. They're, they're you know, shot very lovely. Uh, so, and even just the care that went into this movie, clearly, you know. Um, so, gorgeous, number two. And then intimate, number three. You know, then this isn't just, you know, this isn't to say that it's strictly romantically intimate, though, though it is at certain times, but it's just a small, intimate film. You know, like you say, it's it's almost it was almost so intimate that they had to sort of, you know, tack on this kind of not tack on, but they had to incorporate the, you know, third character sort of subplot with the maiden getting pregnant and all that. Um, It's just about these two people, you know, falling in love with each other and what they're able to or in as it ends up what they're not able to do with that and how they have to sort of uh, put that aside because of you know societal conditions and the nature of their lives and all of that so uh yeah really really wonderful film i agree ryan why don't you put a formal rating on it give us your grade uh i'm gonna give this an a right down the middle 95 percent. nice uh this wasn't perfect i mean um it it was perfect, actually. I'll, I'll, <laughs> let me correct myself. It was perfect for what it was. Um, you know, they, they didn't give you too much. It was kind of uh, in a similar vein as The Lighthouse. Um, I may have given The Lighthouse a couple extra bonus points for being, you know, ape shit, banana pants crazy. <laughs> uh, and I, I love that shit. Yeah. But, um, yeah, this is a 95%, you know, this for, for what the script g- gave us, this was perfectly done. I just think maybe, you know, they're just uh, I could have taken a little more uh, if they wanted to throw a little more at me. Um, I have to reserve those A plus, you know, those A plus grades. Yeah. And there's some there's some awesome movies we have coming up and uh, I can't just go tossing out A pluses. But yeah, 95 <laughs> percent a a uh, a rating here. How about you? Cool. Yeah, I think I'm right around there. Um, I actually have this one at four and a half stars. Um, so I think, you know, there's probably, yeah, yeah, probably, you know, a, a minus something, something right around there. If we're, if we're being equitable. Um, and it's funny because this is actually a movie that, uh, I, I, I ended up bumping it up an extra quarter star after thinking about it. Um, because, you know, as I was watching it, so the, the, the one thing will, I will say again about it is it's, it's a very slow film and it's a very quiet film. You know, I, I don't think it's boring, but I definitely, know that there are people out there that will probably find it boring um, just because, you know, it's it's not a blockbuster by any stretch of the imagination. Right. Um, but, you know, it could have, like I said, you know, it, for, for me to give it the full five stars, you know, I would have I, I would have liked to see a, a couple little things added in there. You know, I, I don't know whether it's story elements, 
Um, just, you know, just needed a little, little more meat on that bone to, to get it up there. But that's not to say that it is, I mean, this film is exactly what it wanted to be. You know, that, that, that like yeah. the film that the filmmaker wanted to make is exactly the film that we watched. And that's amazing that that's a feat in and of itself to be applauded and respected. And so, yeah, man, I'm going to go ahead and give it that, you know, four and a half stars just because, um, you know, initially I didn't really pick up on some of the connections that were there. Uh, I think it just I was, you know, really overtaken by a lot of the cinematography and the gorgeousness of just the visuals. Um, but then, you know, noticing and that's fine. Yeah, that's not a bad thing to but be then, overtaken by. There is no way that this script could have been made any better. Yeah. That's my take on it. Like. Could the script have been a little more meatier? Okay, maybe. But for what the script was, there's no way this movie could have been made any yeah. better. This was flawless. I agree. Uh, I agree. On every stretch. But uh, to, it's, it's kind of hearkening back to something you just said, which is uh, this is a hard movie for me to recommend. Because this is not everyone's cup Correct, of tea. Correct, yes. It's a very deliberate movie. It's a very slow movie. Um I'm not going to go tell all my friends you have to go see this. Because yeah. a lot of them would come back mad at me. So... <laughs> If you're out there and you're listening and you and you heard our breakdown and, and you think this is up your alley, just know this is the perfect thing up your alley. If it's not up your alley, then you're going to hate it. Yeah. I mean, there's just no it's it's going to be kind of a polarizing film in that way. You're either going to absolutely love it. and It's going to be one of your best films from 2020 um, or meh. <laughs> absolutely. So. So, yeah, so that's. And if it is meh. Stay tuned, because do we have a movie for you, my friends? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break right here. When we return, we have a movie to discuss, and discuss it we shall. Stick around. From the imagination of acclaimed author Ashton McCauley comes the next great American anti-hero, Nick Ventner, in Whiteout. Nick is a bit of a lush preferring whiskey to water and bar hopping to exercise. But when a mysterious benefactor hires Nick to find the lost gates of Shangri-La, Nick sobers up just enough to take on the case. Featuring non-stop action and a hilarious wit, Whiteout by Ashton McCauley is a laugh-a-minute thrill ride that will keep you turning the pages until the very end. Whiteout, available now in ebook, hardcover and paperback versions, online and everywhere books are sold. Published by Aberrant Literature. Hi. How are you? Hi. How are you? Hi. How are you? How are you? Fine. Nice, isn't it? Very. Yeah, very. First time here? Uh huh. You? No, I work here. Are you an artist? No, artist assistant. Oh. Wow. You're really great looking. I bet you're tremendous in bed. I just think we need to treat each other like meat. When I'm making love, and I don't really want to chat. She says I talk. I'm a talker. I'm accused of speaking. I'm asking for the best you've ever had. Well, what's your best then? Mine would be my wife. Nobody picked their wife, except maybe on a talk show. The best that I've had. I just have to reach back, that's all. Yeah, call it up. Can I call you? You want to talk? I want to hold you. You want to get some coffee? Can I buy you lunch? You don't want to have a drink with me? I can take it. I have a healthy self-image. I just think we need to do it more often, not make it so special. Could you guys be any happier? No, this is... This is heaven. Amy Brenneman, Aaron Eckhart, 
Katherine Keener, Nastasia Kinski, Jason Patrick, Ben Stiller, your friends and neighbors. Is it me or is this whole thing sort of kind of out of whack? <laughs> no, I think it's you. All right, that was the trailer for your friends and neighbors, the next film that we are going to discuss. Ryan, why don't you give our listeners a description? Holy shit, Jason. Yeah, this is the <laughs> <laughs> this is the antithesis to uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Seriously. Uh, we saw two sides. Yeah, this is two bookends of the same bookshelf, I guess. Uh, the description <laughs> goes... Restless and unhappy, two couples get caught up in infidelity and deception. Barry is, is a sullen businessman married to Mary. Uh, all these uh, names, by the way, Barry, Mary, Jerry. Uh, yeah. Uh, anyways, Barry is a sullen businessman married to Mary, a writer who is unsatisfied with their relationship. Mary begins an affair with Jerry, a smug theater professor and husband of her friend, Terry, who is also a writer. Uh, adding to the adulterous mix are Carrie, a callous doctor, and Sherry, an art gallery assistant. Uh, Jason, what did you think about this movie? Okay, dude, so first things first. Uh, normally we have a few clips for you. We can only find one usable clip, so we're only going to bring you one clip. Just wanted to get that out of the way. Ryan, I will tell you that I did not know any of the characters' names. I literally have every single person referred to in my notes as their actor's name, which just goes to show you how much I bought into these people as real people. You know they don't introduce any of them as their characters' names in the film, and you don't know until the the credits, apparently. Um, And that was intentional. Well, that seems like a joke that's funny to exactly one person and one person only. (laughs) And I don't know if that's like some sort of commentary on how all these people are ultimately sort of supposed to be the same, which which they are in certain negative lights. To answer your question, Ryan, I this was a really difficult movie for me. I, 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 I will tell you that I did not necessarily like it. Well, I didn't enjoy it. So first things first, I did, I did not enjoy it. But it's okay. a well-made movie, and all of the yes. acting was really, really great. Everybody nailed their performances very well. They all played horrible characters really well. And so it's one of those movies where it's like, okay, I'm glad I got it out of the way. And it, it's not to say it's 100% without merit, but I'm not going to say that I liked the film and I'm certainly never going to need to watch it again. How about you, buddy? What'd you think? Yeah. I mean, this, uh, this was a very polarizing film. It just kind of cranked chauvinism up to 11 Um, it it was, it it was very, um, pre-woke, you know what I mean? Like it was very insensitive. I felt like a lot of these things played better before social media, when we all kind of came together under a banner where we started to realize how, you know, the words we used and what we said to each other or about each other, um, affected certain groups of other people. And, I can speak only for myself as saying that the way that I talked as a young man in the 90s is completely different than how I act now, knowing uh, that certain things shouldn't be said and certain things affect certain people. And uh, so I kind of felt like this was a pre-social media movie. It was very 90s in that regard, in that um, you could say things back then amongst your social circles and just kind of get away with it under the the safe the safety net of 
not seeing how those things ripple out, if that makes sense, and not being yeah. held accountable by other people. Um, it's also, uh, I've known some people like this. I've known friends and neighbors <laughs> that have acted this way <laughs> uh, completely inappropriately or, or promiscuously and whatnot. I think at certain times in my life, I may have been one of these people uh, <laughs> in very short bursts, you know, uh, and yeah. acted inappropriately or whatnot. Um, but to see everyone under one movie for uh, an hour and 40 minutes all this way was very, very harsh and very brutal. And by the end, it, uh, I have at one point in my movie, like there's still 30 minutes left. Holy shit. Like it took forever <laughs> to get through this movie because I kind of got it. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yes. By an hour into this film, I get it. <laughs> so yeah. it was a, it was really well made. I agree with you. It was very, very well acted. Kudos to everyone in this film for acting their fucking ass off and giving it their all and really bringing us into this world. Mm -hmm. um, of douchebag socialites, if you will. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, uh, by, by an hour in, it was, it was an easy movie to start and a rough movie to finish. Yeah. And that's kind of one of the conclusions I came to as well, Ryan, this was part of, you know, this, this kind of happened in the nineties, right? Like you say, it was before social media and there was this whole movement, the whole sort of Gen X movement towards being raw and being realistic. Right. And so the nineties saw a lot yeah. of people getting, Showing the the ugly underbelly of various concepts and people and industries and things of that nature, you know, so, um, you know, you could look at like what Abel Ferrara did with like Bad Lieutenant, you know, showing the corrupt cop and, you know, he's, he's you know, exposing himself to kids and busting lines that he takes from drug dealers and like, you know, it was all that sort of like, yeah, we're going to get raw and gritty and real and, and show you right. that these people exist. And so, and it's kind of funny too, where you talk about sort of the evolution of who we are as people, because I think that when I was younger, especially in my late teens and early twenties, I definitely appreciated that, you know, and for whatever reason, maybe it's just part of the maturation process. Maybe we're, angry and so you know we we trend towards maybe some more violent or movies with a more negative outlook that we can sort of uh, sympathize with or that speak to where we are at that place in time but yeah now when i watch movies like this it's like okay look so so your whole point is that you know people are ugly and can be awful guess what in my, you know, close to 40 years on life, I figured that out, believe it or not. I've had plenty of opportunities to figure out and see just how horrible can, people can be in a number of different respects. Thankfully, I, I haven't been personally privy to a lot, you know, on the receiving end of a lot of that. But, you know, when you see business partners screw each other over and, you know, they've been friends for decades and, you know, some guy sells him out for millions of dollars and his friend loses his house and his wife and gets away scot-free. I mean, you know, that's just one of, of, of a seemingly infinite number of examples. And, and, you know, and life's a double-edged sword, right? It's, it's also got a lot of wonderful people with really wonderful things. I mean, I've loved doing this podcast with you and being able to watch these wonderful films and even the films that I hate, I'm always glad to have seen them so that I can have an opinion on them. And usually, unless your name is Wild Strawberries, there's something you can bring to the table that I can come away with and hang my hat on. So yeah, I think this is a movie that would have appealed to me much more so when I was younger. And then, yeah, to your point, the 90s were a different time. And uh, and look, to everyone who's listening, I mean, if you've listened to us at all, and especially if you've heard some of our sketches, you know that we're not easily offended people. You know, we're not 
Uh, you know, we're <laughs> right. definitely not SJWs, and and you know, we we sympathize with a lot of um, you know the plights of of any sort of you know minority people that are struggling, any things like that, right? But we also understand that comedy is comedy, and I think Ryan, it, right. you'll probably agree with me on this: is our tolerance for this type of material really does come down to the angle that you're playing, right? If you are showing us this type of behavior in a sort of Mark Twain-ish way where it's satirical and it's like, you know, I want to show you people being horrible uh, so that you can detest them because they are horrible, right? That That's very different than like, ha ha, look at this guy just lay into this chick for being on her period. Isn't that hysterical? And you're like, actually, nah, bro, it's kind of ugly, right? So then and it was hard yeah. for me to know where LeBute was coming from on this one. I, I, I think even after the movie's over, I, I'm not 100 percent. I think I know where I stand, but I still don't know if it was his intent, especially with regards to the Jason Patrick character. I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about that guy. I, I know that it's a satire on that character and on that type of person. I still don't know if I'm supposed to think he's cool is he an asshole is he funny is like i i i really don't understand the perspective of that character which is one of the reasons i have such a hard time with this film yeah i mean i heard uh an interesting take on comedy and i'm not saying this is supposed to be a comedy i think there are comedic elements where they push limits to try to get comedic effect um but but i i think i heard it stated best uh by seth rogan uh, of all people on uh, comedians in cars getting coffee with Jerry Seinfeld uh, on Netflix, okay. where he said that all the audience wants from you is to acknowledge that you know where the line is. And if you decide to cross that line after addressing that this is where the line is in, in some way, shape or form, then that's comedy. And you could push those limits, but you have to at least acknowledge it. Uh, at some point in your script or or to, you know, whether it's stand up or whatever, you start at a place, you draw a line in the sand and you say, OK, here's where our line is tonight. And now I'm going to like teeter on that and walk on that. And if you completely blow it out of the water, then that could be uh, taken as offensive as well. But, you know, when, when you're in a group of friends, a circle of friends and you're, you know, all talking and having drinks and you say something funny you know, that your friends will acknowledge that you're being funny because they know you and they know that you aren't this way or that you know where that line is. And so when you decide to cross it for comedic effect or an attempt at such, um, you know, that's comedy. But mm -hmm. when you're just going all over the place or throwing it to 11 without any acknowledgement of any kind of line, and that's kind of where the 90s, uh, some of these movies from the 90s uh, fall short because the line was different then. So even when you acknowledge where the line was, I think of movies like uh, Chasing Amy, for example, um, mm -hmm. that takes uh, a lot of interesting looks. I think Kevin Smith has even come on record uh, kind of criticizing his own film uh, at, at times because it was just a different era. And, you know, at that time, you could think Joey Lauren Adams, man, if only, you know, she just had Ben Affleck, you know, she would be straight again. You know, that sort of thing where yeah. we could rein these people back in from sexual preferences or, uh, you know, and then you make comedy about that, about sexual choices or, you know, things that don't play as well today. And this sure. movie bringing it full circle was rife with that. And like, like I said, cranked to 11, these personality types. Um, I even have at one point, Ben Stiller is basically doing 
a prequel to his dodgeball character, you know, where huh. <laughs> it's yeah, just I guess over so, the huh? top offensive, you know, like no one makes me bleed my own blood, you know, <laughs> just like <laughs> totally crazy bonkers uh, theatrical performance, um, you know. Even uh, going back and watching some old sitcoms, you know, Seinfeld or, you know, some jokes just don't land their their take on homosexuality or, you know, uh, uh, how how being gay can be funny or or certain things like that um, or offensive or whatnot. It's uh, yeah, it's it's definitely crazy how that was only just not that long ago. And, and, you know, again, taking the conversation full circle, bringing it back to this film, uh, and, and in contrast to portrait of a lady on fire, Seriously, what an experience dude. to watch one and then go right into the other is like, yeah. so, so, uh, loving and, and endearing and, and such a testament to how far we've come. Uh, you know, and that's the thing too, is like, anytime you start to feel, uh, that, man, we have so far to go and you start to look at society and you start to feel a little hopeless about uh, how we treat uh, certain minority groups or, or certain things. Uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we were here. And it's like, man, we actually have, you know, when you watch Portrait and then you watch this, it just holds up mirror up to society. It's like, you know, maybe we're going to be all right. You know, maybe we are at least trending in the right direction. <laughs> yeah. So let's just keep going and see where we end up. Um, 100%, man. I'm going to let you go ahead and start uh, getting into this because we do need to to get this thing moving here uh, and getting us started down the narrative of this film. Uh, I will say the moment I fired up Amazon Prime to order this film, I was immediately pissed off that uh, I was spending a dollar more uh, for this film than I was Portrait, because Portrait was uh, a solid A movie, and I think that only cost me two ninety nine. and then Neil Labute wanted three ninety nine from me, and I was like... Yeah, and it was standard def, too, so screw you, Neil. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? So, uh, all right. Okay, that yeah, said, so... 1998, Your Friends and Neighbors, directed by Neil Labute. Uh I had never seen this movie. I had seen In the Company of Men, also with Aaron Eckhart. Um, go ahead and get us in there. Yep, so uh, we are going to start right at the beginning. In the beginning... At the beginning! We've got a blank black screen, and we get some voiceover with this guy who's talking very aggressively to a girl mid-coitus and asking if she likes it rough. We cut to his face, and he's, you know, really just working hard, right? Trying to get in there, and then... uh, Oh, except lo and behold, he's actually not banging anybody. He's practicing? With a voice recorder. So that's our intro to this movie and this character. He obviously (laughs) takes it very seriously. And that's going to be pretty much who this guy is for the entirety of the film. Now, Ryan, speaking of comparisons, I did think it was super funny that the credit sequence of this is a close-up of all the characters painted on canvas. uh, Because that was literally how Portrait (laughs) opened was on a blank canvas with, with the character who started sketching. So that was just kind of a funny little coincidence there. And, uh, of course, I'm sure you noticed that the music that plays over the credit sequence was a cello cover of Enter Sandman by Metallica. Yeah, by Apocalyptica. Uh, I actually had this album, believe it or not. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I thought this was really cool in the 90s that I could hear uh, instrumental violin string versions of uh, Metallica songs. Uh, I was a big Metallica guy growing up, so. Absolutely. And then that's going to be the aural theme that they sort of introduce. We're going to get a couple more songs, Metallica songs, that is 
played on the cello throughout the course of the film. And, uh, yep. yeah, so when we uh, come out of the credits sequence, uh, we see Ben Stiller, uh, and he is an acting teacher. He's on stage, he's addressing a bunch of students, and he's with an attractive young student. And, you know, we kind of see him being a little bit inappropriate with regards to the way that he's sort of, you know, touching her and moving her around the stage. And when he sort of, uh, when he sort of goes to address the audience and give like his big reveal about like, you know, what's the heart of acting distilled, his, his response is he says them, he says to the kids that quote, it's all about fucking. And I feel like that's pretty much what Labute's message is here is just that all people want to do is just bang everybody and everybody seemingly hates the person that they're actually with. And Ryan, to your point, you talked about this at the beginning of the show. And I think that this is ultimately the thing that drags down this film the most, which is it has such a shallow worldview. Okay. To to your point, you know, I, I, I didn't, it didn't even take me an hour to really understand what the film was about. You know, the film has one message or, you know, a, a couple ideas wrapped in a singular message anyways. And that's basically just that everybody hates the person that they're with and everybody wants to bang everybody else. And nobody cares about doing so in a very clandestine, sneaky sort of way. And also seemingly there are zero repercussions for doing so. At least any that sort of hit home or land in any sort of way. So, um... Yeah, and 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 as I said, you know, it's like it's such a it's almost like a really naively youthful disposition to take, right? Like I don't I have no idea how old this guy was when he made this movie, but this feels like a movie written by like a 23-year-old that, you know, has yeah. some really edgy views on relationships and and like I said, you know, 10-15 years later, it's just like yeah, no, dude, no, I think you, you you were just horrible at the time and probably projecting, and as a horrible person, you attracted like-minded horrible horrible people, and you got in this circle of horrible people, but to say that, you know, to use that as a commentary on, you know, people as a whole, I think is probably erroneous, certainly that's not my dynamic with my friends, certainly you're not gonna sleep with my wife, and I'm not gonna sleep with your people, and no one's, you know, like, we don't treat each other like that in our circles, and so... I think maybe he's just kind of a horrible guy that found himself in a, in a, in a horrible group of people. And also like the whole thing with like, it just, it was, it was like, <laughs> I don't think that Mr. Labute is, is, is exactly like a man of the people, right? Like, I think this is one of those guys who's like, huh, isn't it funny how every time you go to an art gallery, no one knows what to say. And they say the same thing. And you're like, I have no opinions on art galleries, Mr. Labute. And you're like, I know it's like, it's like the guy who like wants to tell you jokes about like how, when your personal chef screws up the meal and you're like, I think you're talking to the wrong crowd, buddy. Can't, 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 can't see at all here. Yeah. Uh, so Neil, to answer your question, Neil was 35 when he made this film. He's born really? in 1963. Jeez. So this was not a 23 year old's point of view. This was yeah. uh, very much a, a mid thirties kind of a, early midlife crisis. And I kind of felt like all these characters were in that same age bracket as well. They're all Mm -hmm. kind of in their early to mid thirties where the twenties are over life in the fast lanes over, but you're still trying to capture some of that uh, spontaneity, some of that excitement. The thrill is gone. The spark of life is over. You're kind of settled in 
uh, to the career path that you're on and, uh, you know, all that promise of what may be, you know, all that mystery of life is kind of stripped away and now you're here and this is your partner and this is your life and your career. Um, it also had a very 90s feel in the sense that uh, you could, I kind of felt like all these people were disconnected. Like your social group when you were younger was your social group, or when in the 90s rather, was a was your social group. And so uh, the internet didn't exist. Um, AOL Instant Messenger was just getting warmed up. You know, uh, people talked on the phone <laughs> and met for coffee. You know, uh, these are things that uh, all got stripped away. And I think we have a different view uh, kind of harkening back to what I was saying at the top of the show or this uh, part of the show, uh, we have a different viewpoint now because we are so hyper-connected in every way possible. And video uh, is everywhere from our phones to uh, security cameras to our ring doorbells. We're constantly being captured. We're constantly being documented uh, and held accountable in many ways. And so uh, I think we there was a reckoning at some point where you know smartphones came out and it was like, knock it the fuck off, like pull the mirror up. And, uh, we kind of grew up a little bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, this was, I I feel like this was kind of a a time and place where maybe some of these characters giving them the benefit of the doubt, uh, maybe felt stuck a little bit in their social, uh, scheme of things. And they would act out in these ways, uh, without any repercussions. And, uh, because they could giving us people like this Jason Patrick character. So I don't know. It was interesting to go back not so many years and kind of look under a, a microscope um, and uh, and remember, you know, maybe how, how certain people might act in certain positions or social situations that uh, they don't anymore. So anyways. Absolutely. So when we come back, we've got Ben Stiller, who is with his girlfriend, played by Catherine Keener, who's as solid as she ever is. And uh, it's it's an awkward sex scene because... Stiller is trying to talk sexy to her and she's just not really feeling it and he keeps trying and eventually she just like like tells him to shut the fuck up basically and then he's kind of <laughs> wounded and you know he 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 gets off the bed and you know he tries to defend himself a little bit and she's not having it so he just kind of gets up and ends up leaving and the next scene is we're introduced to Aaron Eckhart's character and He's talking to somebody, I believe, in the work office, workspace, about who his best lay was. And he says that it's basically like himself, right? That that nobody can ever please him and treat his body the way that he likes to be pleased. And we see that immediately in the next scene where he is trying to have sex with his wife, played by Amy Brenneman, who's uh, shown up in a lot of TV and indie movies, never really crossed over into that uh, mainstream filmmaking, but... And she is just not having it. Uh, she is, you know, turned away from him and she's silent and it looks like she's about to cry and almost in tears. And, uh, you know, it seems like basically that like he couldn't really get it up for her and she was offended. And Ryan, we have to talk about the, the, that character, that Amy Brenneman character, because by the end of this movie, all three of these friends will have tried to have sex with her and had the same exact reaction, which is like not being able to perform. And she's just sitting there, you know, upset and crying and pissed off and all of this stuff. And it's like, I didn't, 
I didn't understand, again, the perspective. What are we supposed to take from her character? Like, is this a comment on women in general being frigid in the bed? Is this one woman? She's... And, and you can tell me if, if you felt otherwise, but she's incredibly unlikable in this entire movie. I mean, yes, she's very pretty, but she's very unlikable, very distant, very cold, very judgmental uh, about these middle-aged dudes that, you know, she's having issues connecting with sexually. And so by the end of it, I mean, I hated her to the point that any sort of physical beauty is gone because you just detest her character. So, like, the fact that she would be really? the object of affection of all three of these guys really did not play with me. But it sounds like maybe it was different for you. Uh, I just felt kind of bad for her. I felt like there wasn't really uh, a place f- in this film amongst these people, any of these people, for what she was after. She continually asked, continuously asked in the film just to be held. Um, and so she needed, you know, something that these anyone in this circle of friends was not going to offer her. She was in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> the entire film up to the very end, which, you know, they, she kind of is the last one of the last things we see in the movie. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I just kind of felt bad for her. I don't think that she belonged here. And so she was just a character out of time and place. And uh, this uh, Neil Abute was not going to give her what that character, her character of Mary needed. Um, yeah. And as such, every time she was on film, it made it awkward and disturbing for me as the viewer kind of being in that time and place with her. Sure. And uh, because then, you know, now I'm along for the for her ride uh, in this moment and I'm not getting you know, I'm just it makes it really awkward. There's a lot of awkward moments in here because you're in the bedroom with these people a lot. Yeah. And uh, and seeing these very intimate moments and how they can go awry. So often in film, you see these intimate moments and how they go right. Yeah. Uh, and this was a film full of intimate moments gone wrong. And I think the reality uh, for uh, the average person is uh, uh, hopefully a balance of the two, you know. And, sure. uh, you know, sometimes even with your partner, things just don't go right. It's not the right moment. You push something. You try something that doesn't work. I get it. Uh, you're not feeling your partner. You're not giving them their love language or whatever they need to receive from you. Uh, so this, but this was full throttle on the gone wrong sitch. <laughs> so very unbalanced <laughs> film. I think the only character to answer your question, the only character I was really along for the ride with that I kind of felt for and was rooting for in any way, shape, or form with Cat was Catherine Keener's yeah same uh, character personally. I agree. Yeah, and, and even she, you know, fucked around on Old Boy Stiller, but it's with Natasha Kinski. Oh, no, yeah. I mean, come on, dude! Like '90s Natasha Kinski. I mean, she's gorgeous, right? We all right. understand that. <laughs> no, but seriously, but, like, uh, right? <laughs> but to, but to answer your question though, uh, to th- that kind of goes to with what you're saying. Neil Butte puts such a focus on physicality, yeah. on dick dick performance, dick size. <laughs> uh, I have in my notes here, like, d- does Neil Butte have like dick problems? Like, there's something there where it, such a oh, hyper focus is on. Yeah, can we like, look up and oh, see well, if, if he drives an F three fifty raised? I bet you he drives a raised F three fifty. If your woman is not happy, it has everything to do with penis. Like, oh, does your dick not work? Is it not big enough? Is it a weird shape? No, let's talk about your dick then. Because, uh, you know, 
It's like, wait, what? No, there's a hundred reasons why my woman's not happy, and none of them have to do with my dick. I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> okay, but Ryan, so this brings up a good point, and I, and this is kind of like my biggest issue with the film, and with specifically with the Amy Brenneman character. So here's the thing, right? Early on, we see that Aaron Eckhart, there is a disconnect that they have sexually, 100%, without a doubt. But he is a devoted and loving husband, right? Maybe he does not give her the love language that you need, as as you said, right? Maybe he's not necessarily in tune with what she's looking for, right? But, like, A, he does lust after her and her alone. He's not interested in cheating on her whatsoever, Uh, He does, you know, find her to be beautiful. And then he buys her that gift, right? And even though, you know, there's that scene earlier on where he, you know, Ben Stiller and Catherine Keener are having dinner with the two of them. And Aaron Eckhart gives his wife a gift and it's supposed to be like this antique watch, but it's like broken. But and then Ben Stiller's kind of being a dick about it, trying to like point out that it's broken all the time. And, you know, she tries to like, no, no, it's fine. And he's like, yeah, no, it's cool. And then so, you know, he buys her a gift and shows her nothing but attention, and she just gives him the cold shoulder the entire time in bed, first and foremost, which, okay, you know, you want to say that, you know, we don't know what happened prior to that, right? We don't know if he has been neglecting her or if he's super aggressive when she's asked him to be a little softer, right? We, We don't know that, right? But we do know that he loves her. We know that he's devoted to her. We know that he goes out of his way to buy her presents. And when... She decides, so at that same dinner, she's propositioned by Ben Stiller, who basically says uh, when, you know, Catherine Keener and Aaron Eckhart are out in the kitchen, he's like, hey, I really like you. Let's meet up. And she's like confused at first. And then eventually she relents and she says, "Okay." And despite that one moment where she says, you know, I just want to be held or whatever, that's the only sort of emotional beat that she's given. Right. Because here's the thing. She's not pissed off that Ben Stiller didn't give her any emotional support or whatever. She just wanted some deep dicking. That's it. She just wanted to get laid. And then when Ben Stiller couldn't get it up, she was completely pissed off about it. So she was completely willing to cheat on her very devoted husband. And so right, and so that decision right, right there removes any sort of are we, sympathy Wait, are we talking her. about Amy Brennerman? Are we, yeah. We're talking about Amy Brennerman. Correct, yeah. yeah. So, okay. so again, so, so she willingly cheats on her husband who who has already, you know, established and will continue to establish that he has no interest in cheating on her. And so right. that's what, that's that's why I don't sympathize with that character. Okay, so a uh, couple things. For the listeners right now, I want to just unwind this because obviously this conversation is going to be more out of theme and principle than it is out of narrative. So uh, the narrative is super easy for everyone that hasn't seen the film. You have Aaron Eckhart, who's married to Amy Brennerman. You have two couples, basically Uh, Ben Stiller, who's dating Catherine Keener. Those are our two couples. You also have two X factors, uh, single people, Jason Patrick. This is as chauvinist of a character as you're going to ever meet. This is Christian Bale out of American psycho uh, level eighties capitalism chauvinist. And uh, and then you have Natasha Kinski, who is a art assistant uh, at a uh, exhibit for a art museum, and she plays the uh, potential love interest for Catherine Keener. So you have two couples, two singles, uh, and everybody's sleeping with everybody in the worst kind of ways to hurt each other in the most uh, exorbitant kinds of ways. So 
unwinding that, now that we've kind of stated that, got everybody caught up to speed, uh, now we can kind of jump in and out of the narrative to address principles and, and the way these people are, are acting um, uh, non-sequentially or, or whatnot. Uh, so Amy Brennerman, I'm glad you bring this up because she, I think, has uh, the through point in the film that kind of sums up the entire premise of the film. To me, personally, she's the one that wrapped it up for me. And she okay. continually tells her partners that she just wanted something different, uh, which is, I think, what all these people are looking for is just something new, some level of excitement to get that feeling of uh, thrill uh, back from when you're in your 20s and you meet someone new and there's, you know, the honeymoon phase and all of that. And these people have lost all of that. Uh, ironically, even Jason Patrick, who uh, is still single and still out hobnobbing and, and uh, doing what he does uh, in a very terrible way, but he's still lost that innocence and that uh, that level of excitement, that whisper of a thrill. And so I think Amy Brennerman, as she goes along, her character uh, just keeps telling everyone, I just wanted something different because she's chasing the unchaseable or the the, un, the ungettable thing, you know, that that lightning in a bottle feeling that you get with someone when you first meet them. And so to just go around to sleep with people, that's not what gets you there. That's not what what captures that excitement. Um, it's the connection that you feel. And she's going into these relationships for physical reasons, hoping that it will ignite that spark. But when there's no connection there, do you kind of feel that too or no? I understand what you're saying, but I couldn't be in further disagreement. And here's why. And this is going to be interesting because, um, uh, you know, for, for those people listening, Brian, you're a single dude. Uh, I have been with, I am, I have been with my wife for, I think 13 years now. Uh, even though we've only been married about four or five of those, right. Had a house together for 10. Like we were in it for the long haul. Okay, and the reason that I think that's bullshit is because that's the sacrifice. That's what you get up because that's what you give up when you enter into a a long term relationship with somebody, because guess what? You also pick up things. Okay, you pick up security. You pick up having someone you get to come home to every single night. You pick up someone who cares about you, someone who will do things for you, someone who's invested in your success. And yes, the one thing you have to give up is going out and philandering around. And yes, getting that exciting feeling where you meet someone of the opposite or same sex, depending on how you swing. Um, and, you know, like, yes, we that is still exciting, right? Like me or my wife at, you know, late 30s, meeting someone for the first time. There's an obvious attraction to character, physical, whatever it is, right? Yeah, you know, that's a nice feeling. But that's where it ends, okay? Because we've entered into a committed relationship with one another. And if you want to take a little bit of a, you know, emotional, like, yeah, okay, you know, like, that person was feeling me, awesome, still got it, whatever. Nothing wrong with that, right? But it begins and ends there because you're committed to someone. And if you're not, and if that person's not giving you what you need, you either work it out with them or you move along. She's trying to have her cake and eat it too. She wants to be taken care of. It doesn't seem like she works. So, you know, she's probably taken care of financially as well. But... Oh, I'm not feeling exciting. You know, I don't have anything exciting in my life at 37. Guess what? None of us do, chick. That's the way it goes. You want that? (laughs) Break up with your man. Go be single. Go get a job. Go give up all the stuff that you got from entering into this relationship. But if you're going to tell me that I'm supposed to sympathize with you because you want to have your cake and eat it too, sorry, not going to happen. 
No, 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 no. I'm not. So real quick, let's unwind this because you're not going to paint me out to be the Jason Patrick uh, <laughs> of this uh, show here. <laughs> dude, no, I heard you before we started uh, the program, dude. That Those were sex grunts. And I heard the recorder playing in the background. <laughs> and I... I mean, <laughs> I have all this audio equipment, Jason. What, I'm not going to record myself. <laughs> Fuck off with that. Uh, no, I, I'm, I'm just saying where I think... The, I'm trying to find the message amongst all this scattershot uh, chauvinism and, and sexual prowess and my dick doesn't work. I was trying to find the through point of the message maybe and cut through to what Neil Butte was trying to say with this film. And I thought Amy Brennerman's character was the one that kind of summed it up when she said, I just wanted something different. That's not to say that it's right uh, or wrong or, or anything of that sort. Um, you know, there are also relationships that just don't work. Uh, God bless you for finding your, your person, Jason, and, and making it through and, and, uh, and being able to rejuvenate that. Sometimes people settle down with the wrong people in their 20s. Some people outgrow other people, and they're different people in their 40s than they were at 26. And so compatibility changes, and uh, people evolve. They're constantly in a state of flux. So, um, you know, I think that there isn't always one textbook answer for love. That's the beauty of love. It's different to everybody. And when you find your person and you can connect with them, and you're in the foxhole. I mean, that's really all it's about, right? Like we're on the battlefield of life and it's just, who do you want to be in the foxhole with? Who do you trust to watch your back? Who's not going to, you know, steal your shit or stab you in the back or do the wrong thing. Um, that's all you need. And so, but I, I think these people were, were maybe sold a bill of goods or a promise of something more. Uh, and Amy, all Amy, uh, you, you were speaking to Amy Brennerman's character specifically. And, and that's why I said, you know, I just thought that she was maybe the through point amongst all this chaos where all these people just were maybe seeking this thing that to your point was a Jack and the Beanstalk scenario where it's like, you know, that doesn't exist. You can't, there's no magic answer. You can't, you're not just going to find this excitement and all of a sudden it's in a box somewhere and you're like, Oh, cool. You know, yeah, uh, I found it and now I'm excited all the time. It's like, no, no, that's not what love is. Love is you can do that. And that's dating and that's your 20s and all of that. But at a certain point, you have to shift and get to the meat and bones of what a relationship and what a connection with someone is. And yeah, though you do sacrifice certain things, you gain back a million fold, hopefully, if you find the right person and they give you what you need out of that. So cool. Yeah. Uh, but this isn't a movie about those people. And this isn't a movie about those circumstances and, and that, uh, you know, back and forth and the yin and yang of it all. This is a movie about a bunch of assholes that are all seeking for the unattainable and willing to stab each other in the back to get it. And, um, you know, and if you want that, uh, you know, that level of, of sexual excitement and, and always finding something new, that's fine. There's places for that, too. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, just don't overcommit yourself to a point where you're hurting other people uh, to get it, you know, just yeah. be honest with yourself, be honest with your partner. And uh, these are lessons I think that maybe you could take away from this entire film uh, if there was any. Yeah. You know, and I mean, there's, there's even people that deal with that, that by entering into open relationships, you know, if that's your thing and that works for sure. you and your partner, like rock on, you know, like whatever it is. But again, just, you know, this whole like, Oh, well, yeah. I'm going to justify my cheating by trying to get you to understand where I was at emotionally. And, and no, dude, just, you know, t t just own up to it, dude. That's all I'm saying. So, and then right. no, I get it. Yeah. Honesty now, is key. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and through that, as big of an asshole as Jason Patrick is, 
uh, he's kind of the only one in this entire film who's honest about anything. 100%. Honest yeah. with himself, honest with his partners. And he's the biggest douchebag out of everyone in this <laughs> film. Total chauvinist, uh, complete over-the-top chauvinist. Uh, and yet, he's the only character Neil LeBute gives us uh, that's giving anyone any honesty, any level of honesty, you know? Yeah. Um, he plays like, uh, kind of like Kramer on Seinfeld meets Christian Bale's character in American Psycho. You know, mm-hmm. it's somewhere in between the two. Or just complete <laughs> over the top bachelor uh, that just pops in at random moments. Hey, what's going on? You know, this is my take <laughs> on it. And then he pieces out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And and there's another interesting thing about his character that I noticed. Uh, I noticed it about the point where. So we saw we heard in the trailer at the top of the show uh, and and this is a recurring theme, the whole thing about how the characters keep showing up to the art gallery that Natasha Kinski works at and and starting the and having the exact same conversation with her, um, you know, oh, is this part of a series like blah, 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 which, like I said, I, I think is I think is supposed to be like a, a joke for the the art gallery crowd. Uh, needless to say, that went over my head, but it did feel like something that certain people might find funny. I don't know. Either way, yeah. this is the one thing that I noticed about that time. So he comes out very aggressively, right? Again, you know, we heard at the top of the trailer, you know, oh, I bet you're great in bed. You know, he's, he's very forward with these women. And she walks away. Did you notice that in the entire movie, Ryan, we never actually see Jason Patrick with a woman? There is exactly one scene where he is with a woman, and she's hidden in the bathroom while we see him outside, like ranting and raving at her. And the implication, I believe, is that because she's on her period and he's raging out at her, they did not have sex. So that was actually a funny thing where you could start to argue that Labute is arguing against Jason Patrick's character to a certain degree because for as you know, machismo, chauvinist, alpha male as this dude is, he never actually gets anyone throughout the whole movie, right? Where at least the other people are kind of banging each other. You think there's anything there? To an extent, we do see Jason Patrick's character at the end, right? With Amy Brennerman's character. So that's Don't the, that's the one time that we do see him with a woman. Yeah, that's the one and only time where we right. actually see him in bed with a woman. And again, the implication, because... She's reacting exactly the same way she did with her husband and with Stiller is that he couldn't perform. And so that's why I say, you know, if it's one of these guys like, okay, yeah, certainly could be them. Two of them. eh. all three of them. I believe the implication is that there's something about her character that's turning off these dudes. And then instead of could be owning up to that or taking any responsibility or recognizing that it's just always the dude's fault 100% of the time all the time whether fair or not i believe right. that's what his statement is with that character well she seems to be always looking for the next thing so even in bed post coitus she's thinking about oh i wish it was different i wish it was different yeah. and so when you're always caught up about what else is out there what what am i missing out on uh, what's the next thing um even in the, then you're missing out. You're not living in the moment and you're not appreciating these things that are right in front of you. And, and Amy is, uh, Amy Brennerman's character rather is, uh, I think guilty of, of that, if nothing else, that, uh, even though we only catch her post coitus, uh, you know, in, in that disappointment, it's hard for me to believe, uh, as they've introduced her character as such, that she wouldn't be carrying that disappointment, even in sex in that moment, uh, that she wouldn't be thinking about, you know, 
how could this be better? Or, oh, it's not as good as the last time. Or, yeah. you know, the next time will be better. And so uh, as a partner of someone like that, how do you engage when there's no connection? You know, she's not reaching out to connect with you in that way in that moment, you know? And so, uh, yeah, that can definitely affect your your sexual performance, I would imagine, uh, having a partner that is not interested in you in the slightest, that's just along for the ride, if you will. Um, also, talking about Jason Patrick's character um, in that moment of the... So we, we cut to him... And he's on his bed. By the way, Jason Patrick's bed is no less than five feet tall. Did you notice that? Like, <laughs> what the fuck was that about? He would get out of bed and it was shoulder height. Like, you need a ladder to get up there. It's the it's the top bunk only without a bottom bunk. Is, 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 <laughs> it's incredibly is, large. Is he a short dude? Is this like a is this like a John Wayne thing where they've got to make the saloon door small to make him look big? Yeah, I I mean no, the it, it, the bed dwarfs him. So if he's a short dude, they went the wrong way with it. They should have given him an, an ankle sized bed or a cot or something, or had him fucking on a yoga mat. But this is completely silliness. Um, but uh, you know, the only thing I could think of is they were creating a scenario wherein his bed is like his throne. It's his dojo. You know, it's a powerful place for him to be sure. above all and and to set a, a, atop the world, if you will, uh, metaphorically speaking. He complains to his partner, who is now in the bathroom, embarrassed, uh, that we only get references to. Like you said, uh, to your point, we never see. Uh, and he's mad at her for being uh, on her period or, or, or having uh, menstruations on his bed. Okay, but and, Ryan, Ryan, uh, real quick, real quick. I, I think you're underselling the emotions a little bit because it changes this. He's not upset. He is outright raging against her. He's furious. He is he's calling raging. her names, denigrating her. Like he yes. like like he is being absolutely horrible to this woman for being on a a naturally occur, occurring cycle, and he's he's literally taking it personally. Like you did this to me, you knew this, you did this to fuck with me, blah blah blah. Like just being absolutely gross and horrible. So let's just, I just want to clarify yes. that real quick, and and you can continue from there. No, no, no. He is going bananas to the level of Willem Dafoe in the lighthouse mad that Robert Pattinson <laughs> doesn't Hark! like his cooking. Like, <laughs> you don't like me cooking? <laughs> what about the lobster? I mean, he's that engaged in this. Uh, and he's mad, and he starts to freak the fuck out over his bedding. And he says... Uh, and he brags about his 380 thread count sheets. Yeah. Um, Much am like I Patrick understanding Bateman. this correctly about thread counts? I need to go back and unwind this because I know about chauvinism and I know about sexuality. What I don't know is about thread counts. Isn't the higher <laughs> the better? Isn't 380 thread count shit? Uh, and then he says he's going to go to the store. Uh, she can clean herself up and let herself out and whatnot. He's going to get some 409. Uh, I don't think you clean menstruation blood <laughs> off of sheets with 409. <laughs> I don't think this guy has any fucking clue what's going on. And maybe by proxy, neither does Neil Butte. <laughs> what is going on in this movie? <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah, no, I think. Uh, and, and look, and maybe, maybe that's intentional. Maybe it's supposed to be like, oh, look, look how much this guy doesn't understand women. He thinks that. Yeah, right. To, he thinks he's got this. such a grasp on society. And yet. Uh, he doesn't even know what the fuck he's got on his bed or how to clean it or how to do anything for himself. He's a totally helpless man, baby. I don't know. Like, yeah. Maybe you're right. Maybe that's the deal. I don't know. So, Ryan, we do actually have to talk about this this one scene, and, and we don't have to go into incredibly explicit detail because it's 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 a it's definitely a very, very graphic monologue. And 
I, 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 I imagine this is kind of. I already of know the, where you're going. Yeah, it of is. course, dude. I imagine this is the one scene that most people probably remember from this film because it's so powerfully acted and it's like a one take and it's a close up. But it's just the most disgusting and revolting story because they're the, the three dudes are sitting in a sauna and they're asking each other what their best lay is. Eckhart says his wife, which we know is bullshit, still refuses to answer. And then Jason Patrick goes into a very graphic story about what can only accurately be described as a gang rape of a young man in high school. And that's his best lay. And And he goes into this like three to five minute monologue and I hate how arresting it is because it, it's 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 an uncomfortable gross ugly scene but it's it's so passionately delivered it, that one really fucked with me dude what'd you think uh, same absolutely the same um I think we said at the top of the portion of this uh episode uh, covering this that all these guys and and ladies uh everyone every actor and actress in this film uh gave it their fucking all and this scene is kind of the culmination of all of that for me in uh, with Jason Patrick. It also really made me sad. I, I think I texted you as I was watching this uh, and asked you, where did Jason Patrick go? I mean, if he's capable of delivering such a monologue about gang rape and a shower in high school being his best uh, sexual uh, experience, what more did he have to give us? Uh, <laughs> right. or, or does he still have to give us in the acting world that, that he's being hidden away from like where did Jay, is he just hard to work with or because uh, I looked up his filmography and aside from Lost Boys and Rush there weren't too many other performances outside of this one that I could attach myself to knowing much about uh, excuse uh, me excuse me excuse me Alamo. speed two cruise control are you serious we're not we're not giving him that speed two cred <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> Sorry, um, I wonder if he has any. I mean, I haven't seen it. Did he crush that movie? And I've just been staying away from it for too long. I need to <laughs> bone up on my old Jason Patrick performances. No pun intended. We're going to do a yeah. special episode on Speed Two Cruise Control, man. Maybe in the off season. <laughs> this uh, we'll leave that to how did this get made? Uh, <laughs> this performance. Um, yeah, that monologue was certainly powerful. It certainly was polarizing. It drew you in and pushed you out at the exact same time. It was a what the fuck moment that you was performed so endearing uh, that you kind of felt for this asshole, evil, wicked, terrible human being who was repressed and uh, could never be themselves and relished in that and used it as a weapon. I don't know. Yeah, the whole thing was just fucked up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, again, you know, it's like one of those things. I have to recognize the artistic merit in it, for sure. I have to recognize the right. the power of the acting. And, and again, dude, the guy, he crushed one it. take, dude, one take close up, you know? Yeah. So that's yeah. remarkable. But One single long shot. Yeah, yeah, but uh, needless to say, it could be described as problematic here in 2021, so... Interesting film. Yeah, I mean, for the listeners, he's for the listeners. Uh, all these men are in a uh, sauna of sorts, and they're all discussing uh, their best sexual experience. Jason um, Patrick's se best sexual experience was in high school, wherein uh, a narc that was always ratting him and his friends out. Uh, they took him into the showers and gang raped him, and he said that every he went last. 
uh, and everybody before that was a gang rape, but he had a connection with this kid. And it's very graphically told um, how that connection plays out during this rape sequence um, that uh, he heralds this as his greatest sexual experience uh, that's never been replicated. So, um, yeah, hard to listen to. Maybe the whole scene is roughly, what would you say, Jason? Four or five minutes? Yeah, that's uh, fair. Three minutes, something About like four that. Minutes, probably. It's told in explicit detail. Um, but yeah, that this is what we're talking about, and it's fucking brutal to listen to, and yet so engaging at the same time. Absolutely. Uh, equally brutal and engaging, uh, uh, kind of taking us out of that sequence, uh, is Aaron Eckhart's mustache. <laughs> that fucking thing needed its own credit. I, uh, I have several notes about it. I've never seen Aaron Eckhart with such a bold stash. Uh, this movie is very stash and goatee friendly, as was the late 90s. Uh, that was a very, I had a mustache goatee combo a la Ben Stiller in this film mm-hmm. at that time in life. Um, Same. It was very stash and goatee friendly. And uh, man, Eric Aaron Eckhart wore his... Uh, his nose bib uh, very proudly in this film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so now one thing I do want to play for the listeners real quick, Ryan, is this clip. It's shortly after the whole – well, I think it actually comes right after the scene where Jason Patrick freaks out on the woman. And it's where he finds Catherine Keener at the bookstore, and he's trying to be all alpha male with her and get her to go have coffee with him. And she's basically just, like, not having it. And I think that's part of what endears us to Katherine Keener as well. She always plays strong characters, and this is no different. Yeah. Let's go ahead and listen to this clip real quick. This is odd, isn't it? Hmm. It's running to anyone you know in a city this size. Oh, yeah. Like fate. Oh, God, not fate. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I hear that word uh, thrown around our place a lot, so, yeah. He loves those Greeks, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Anyway. You want to get some coffee? Uh, actually, I'm uh, I'm meeting someone, so. All right. Okay. What about later? I'd even go for decaf. Um. No, no, thank you, though. I I, I have. Why not? Huh? Do you? What are you doing? Why are you acting like a... Because I want to take you out. It's just coffee. Don't say no. I already did. I could say it again for you. No. Leave me alone. Okay. I see you're a real piece of work, you know that? That's great. Nobody actually likes you. You're aware of this, right? Are you for real? I don't get your kind. You give my friend nothing but grief, always coming off like some dyke bitch. How do you live with yourself? What the fuck is the matter with you? Hey, you don't want to have a drink with me? That's fine. I can take it. I have a healthy self-image. But you keep dicking around people I know. And one of these days I'm going to find you. And I'm going to knock you on your ass. You are a useless cunt. Get used to it. Now, Ryan, once again, this kind of illustrates 
one of the, the the primary issue I have with understanding the Jason Patrick character because in that clip, like is is he supposed to be something of a hero for telling her that right for for quote unquote sort of like putting her in her place and telling her that no one likes her and she's a bitch and all this sort of stuff like is it plays as though we're supposed to be like yeah good for you Jason Patrick way to stand up to her but. When you really break it down, who does like, she think she is? Yeah, yeah, but but like when you really break it down, like that's just more of that sort of misogyny of that character coming through. Like that's him unloading on her because she rebuffed his advances. That, that that's really all that comes down to. So, and, and I right. to your point at the top of the show, I don't know if Neil Labute knows that or not. I, I don't know if I'm supposed to be like, yeah, look at what an asshole he is, or hey, look at what a hero he is for standing up to this woman, right? I, I still don't know. So my take on that is that there are no heroes in this film. There are just people, and humans aren't heroes. Humans are flawed organisms, uh, just going through life, doing the best we can, or not. Uh, and the choices we make affecting other people as we ping-pong our life uh, along through life's challenges and travails and relationships and experiences um you know we could either choose to address our connection to others or not and but there's no heroes this ain't a hero situation this ain't a hero movie this ain't a good guy bad guy good cop bad cop kind of film uh this is just a human tale stripped away to its most raw uh format in a pre uh woke pre-social media atmosphere like we talked about so no accountability just rough around the edges bullshit. So I don't think there's because Catherine Keener isn't a saint and you know, Jason Patrick's worse. And, and so there's no good side of this and Catherine Keener's being affected by Ben Stiller's character. Who's a douche. And everyone's just wrapped up in, in all this assholitude and uh, there's no good people out there. If anything, I think it's Neil Labute's uh, criticism of humanity in general and just that we're all fucking terrible. Yeah. Uh, it's just a sad tale. And and thusly, it was hard to watch for fucking an hour and 40 minutes. Like, Jesus Christ. Like, that was so rough. And so that after you get through that Jason Patrick rape monologue in the shower, I'm like, dude, I'm done. I need to go take a fucking shower. I right. feel dirty as shit right now. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking about some life choices I made. I just want to go fucking drink a beer and chill for a second. It was heavy. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't really care for this at all. <laughs> I mean, it was, and, and yet, and yet to your point, it was so well made. Yeah. So I didn't know. Uh, it really left me very, very feeling very strange and, and not really knowing how to accept this. I see why Neil Abute has a career. I really do. Yeah. Um, Good filmmaker. Solid indie film. Yeah. Uh, you know, this was. Very well done. He got the performances he needed. Uh, was engaging all the way through. And just the fact that, you know, a movie can make me feel so uncomfortable uh, without being that graphic. By the way, something we didn't really talk about, there's like little to no nudity in this film at all. Uh, there's very little graphic sex. It's all just in how it's referenced and performed and, and talked about. Yeah, and, it's all graphic language. It's a true testament. Yeah, it's yeah, just the it's, language. It's a true it's testament graphic. to these characters' performances that they can make you feel so uncomfortable uh, and take you so far into their world without exploiting uh, sex or or showing it or delivering it in any way, shape, or form other than just drawing you in with their performances and their descriptions and their experiences. And uh, so hats off to everyone in this fucking film, really. 
uh, but I'll never watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and 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 I think I do think it's interesting because I think that I think that Labute kind of does try to give everybody a little bit of a comeuppance, but maybe his like heart's not in it or something because I didn't buy any of it. So because when the film wraps up, pretty much everybody ends up you know leaving everybody else the, the way that everything works out. So like we didn't mention this before, but like at the end of the shower sequence. Ben Stiller comes back to Aaron Eckhart and tells him that the best lay of his life was his wife, Aaron Eckhart's wife. And, you know, he's not sure if it's a joke or not, but it eats away at him. And, you know, by the end of the film, which, by the way, it obviously wasn't, you know, like they did not have good sex at all. If that's right. the best he's had. He's had a rough, rough career in the bedroom. And uh, so, you know, like that was obviously just designed to hurt him and and get back at him which obviously makes us like that character that much less so but when Eckhart does finally confront Ben Stiller about that like he he Ben Stiller is like yeah actually you know yeah I did I'm really sorry about that buddy and he's kind of like yeah yeah that sucked and he's like yeah yeah, and this is kind of <laughs> I mean, it, dude. Like, <laughs> like no, no bows thrown, no like fuck you, you know, storming out, huge thing, blah blah blah. It's just kind of like, eh, yeah, I did kind of bang your wife. How about that? <laughs> you see Seinfeld last night? Like, come on, dude. And then, <laughs> and then you know, so like, and then from there, you know, Ben Stiller goes to the art gallery because he finds out that Natasha Kinski's been sleeping with his girlfriend, and so he confronts her about her. And then he meets up with Catherine Keener, who promptly breaks up with him. And then, you know, he turns around from there and he's banging the pretty student from the art class. And already, you know, uh, Catherine Keener's ignoring Natasha Kinski, seemingly tired of her already. And, you know, Aaron Eckhart's trying to get himself off. And then that's when we, you know, he's alone. And then that's when we get the scene where, you know, the final shot where Jason Patrick uh, is revealed to be, you know, trying to, anyways, attempting to sleep with the Amy Brenneman character who doesn't seem to have broken up with Aaron Eckhart and is once again out sleeping with his friends and I'm not supposed to hate her. Fine, whatever. But uh, yeah, and again, it's just, and, and that's kind of where the film ends and it's, you know, again, it's, it's the, the ending message is the exact same than we got at minute 20, very much to your point at the top of the show, which is that doesn't have too much to say other than people suck and, Nobody cares about, you know, bringing right. in their friends, uh, partners and everybody wants to be with someone yeah. else. So, and the, and the performances carried that, uh, and got me through about the first hour, hour and 15. And then after that, I was just like over it. Uh, even the good performances were, were not enough to save this, you know, reoccurring message of awfulness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Depression. Uh, you know, and look, uh, you know, pros and cons, for me wrapping up this film, um, I, I it really polarized, you know, it's like, cause on one hand it's like being single is neat, you know, like, uh, I don't have to deal with all this horse shit, you know, I just <laughs> gotta dodge these, these bullets all together, uh, by, by not, cause Lord knows, I mean, if I was dating someone and we watched this film together, it might've been an awkward, did you watch this with your wife? Cause this would have been an awkward situation <laughs> for me to share with someone. No, no, she's, she wouldn't have liked it. You know, it, it also made me, uh, you know, uh, cautiously optimistic that, uh, you know, watching this and Portrait of a Lady on Fire, that uh, we've grown past this situation and, and uh, there's hope for love yet. 
<laughs> and love shall endure and all of the purities of that. And, uh, you know, anyways. Yeah, so the movie not ending on a positive note, but the podcast ending on a positive note. There's hope for love yet. <laughs> Ryan, go ahead and hit us up with your three adjectives, man. What you got? Uh, the first one's pretty obvious. Actually, all three are pretty obvious. And I don't have to say much more than I already did. I got cold because it was just a cold film. These are cold people doing cold things to each other uh, without any thoughts of repercussion. Um, and even when they do get their repercussion, they don't really seem to care much about it anyway. It's just a fuck everyone kind of film. Uh, Pre-Woke, we talked about this as well. Um, this is one of my hyphenated deals. Uh, you know, this is before maybe a lot of society realized how things we do kind of affect each other. We weren't as connected then as we are now. We could see, I say this, and then, you know, it directly affects these people. So, you know, hey, kudos to us as a society and and as humanity, though maybe we're growing a little bit, uh, give ourselves a little credit uh, at a time and place when we beat ourselves up every day for every little thing that's said. Uh, and also, this was 90s. This was 90s as fuck. Uh, I got um, in my notes, like, are indie films held to a higher standard now that we have more equipment? I mean, just from a filmmaking standpoint, I mean, it's 90s. Like, not yeah, from its topic sure. or subject matter. Like, we've already beat over the head. This was wide shot, establishing shot, coverage, coverage, coverage. Wide shot, establishing shot, coverage, coverage, coverage. There's no camera movement. There's very little music in the film. It's a very, very silent film. Um, this was just 90s indie to its core. And, uh, you know, it, it was it was nice to kind of go back to that throwback. Like I said, it kind of had a, an early Kevin Smith feel or, you know, some of these, uh, nineties films that maybe not, they don't hold up quite as well. Now we're used to seeing a lot more dynamic, uh, camera movement and audio and score. These things are easier to get now and more accessible, uh, than they were back then, back then in the nineties, if you just made a film like cool, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> the fact that you were able to, to achieve that and get something out there, uh, was a testament of your, uh, tenacity in this industry but uh, now that the standards held a little higher at least because the tools are out there to to do it with so it's like dude why didn't you spend a little extra money and get these things that were right there at your fingertips uh, so anyway cold pre-woke and 90s how about you jason nice yeah so i'm gonna go with the old uh, compliment sandwich here which is where uh you know you put a, a compliment in the middle as the filling with a criticism bread on either side so my first one is that it's and this is a word that gets overused shall we say but it's pretentious and what i mean by pretentious is the like dictionary definition of the word where this film thinks it has a lot to say like you can tell like labute was all like yeah man we're gonna get in there we're gonna expose this and we're gonna talk about that and i'm gonna layer it with these you know satires of art gallery and this and that and blah 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 and it's just not deep at all dude you know it's again it's very surface level not a lot of meat on the bone as we like to say on this show um, you know, just it's, it's, it says at hour one and a half, what it said at minute 20. And so for that reason, I'm going to describe yeah. it as pretentious. Uh, the, the compliments, no, it's a, it's a limp dick of a movie. This movie is in fact, what it is making fun of throughout most of the movie, which right? is, this is a very unerect, unsatisfying penis of a movie. I was, I was the, the Amy end, Brenneman character, there. dude. I was turned away. My arms were crossed. Yep. I was sitting there with a sour look on my face. Like, fuck this movie. That was me as the viewer by the end of the film. Absolutely. Saying to Neil, <laughs> the butte, I just wanted it to be different. I wanted something different. <laughs> 
That's awesome, dude. My uh, second adjective is well made. As we've as we've mentioned, it's a it's a really Agreed. competently put together, well acted, well shot. Uh, you know, yeah. simply directed but effective. And lastly, I, I think you may have had it, but it's just it's an ugly film. That's just it. It's it's ugly all around. You know, it's I mean, first of all, you know, yeah. it, it doesn't have a Blu-ray. It's an old school, you know, scratchy standard def. So uh, the, the, the images are pretty flat. You know, it's not going to win any awards for interesting cinematography or anything like that. So and then on top of it, it's just got these horrible, horrible characters. The the language is ugly. The characters are ugly. So pretentious, well made and ugly. Ryan. It is time to formalize these ratings. Give us a great rating. I'm going to give this uh, right down the middle C. Uh, this is a 75% movie. I think that uh, if you look it up on uh, any movie site, you're going to see about the same thing. Uh, it's very well acted, very well made, um, and it's engaging. There's a lot to critically like about this film without actually liking this film. So uh, I would have get you know if this was less well made, uh, I would have you know gone way down in the D range. But uh, we'll we'll bump this up to a nice C, middle of the road C. How about you? Yeah, kind of the same thing. I'm um, giving this one two and three quarters, just because you know pretty much split down the middle. You know, three out of five in terms of being you know greatly made but not so greatly written or didn't enjoy it and then just had to take away an extra half or quarter star anyways just because i needed it to fall on that side a little bit you know um yeah that's fine yeah yeah yeah. so and and look if this movie wasn't as well made it easily could have been a one and a half star film you know certainly certainly would probably top out about the two um so it is getting that extra you know three quarter stars there just for how competently made it is and for how well acted it is but uh, yeah, don't necessarily recommend this to many people. Uh, if you want to see some actors do some really great stuff with questionable material, this, this might be worth your time. If you're uh, a Neil Labute super fan for some reason, you know, definitely, uh, like I said, it's a it's a well-made film. And if you and if you know even listening to this, you've disagreed with our perception, and you you do find yourself on the opposite side of, of the way that we see these things. And you do kind of sympathize with the characters in the way that we've talked about, um, you know, might be more up your alley, but for me, two and a half out of five. And uh, Ryan, we're going to go ahead and we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back and we are going to do a quick comparison feature and uh, do a little compare and contrast on these two films. So listeners stick around. We're going to be right back. Settle down now, children, settle down. Class has officially begun. As you know, my name is Professor McGonagall, and this is Expressionistic Painting 313. And, for the record, yes, I am still of the opinion that one of you is a foreign intelligence agent posing as a student, and I do intend to get to the bottom of this matter soon enough. In the meantime, let us ignore this suspicion and turn our attention towards the concept of lighting in our work. Now, as we have seen in so many examples... Mr. McGonagall! Yes, what is it? Um, you said you would get a live model this week. Yes? Well, I don't see any models around. You know, you're an impatient little bugger. Did anyone ever tell you this? I actually do have a model for us today, and I had this whole brilliant reveal planned that involved satin sheets and music, and now you've just gone and destroyed the entire scheme. Frankly... It's exactly the sort of move a secret agent of a foreign military would make. 
I'm sorry. <sighs> well, there's no use in extending the drama now. Children, please welcome today's live model, hailing all the way from California in the United States, Mr. Crunchy Winkabean. What's up, little Crunchyritos? How's it hanging? I'm super stoked to be rocking my bod for y'all on this fine Tuesday. Mr. McGonagall, Mr. McGonagall. Uh, yes, what is it? What's California, then? A giant failing hippie commune that doesn't exist yet. And what's the United States? A soon-dominant superpower, but not to worry, they won't be united for long. Now, children, enough doddling. Let's get down to brass tacks. Crunchy, if you would be so kind as to take front and center stage. No sweat, Chet. Now, class, when we last left off, we studied the effect of candlelight on our subjects, with specific attention to how shadowing is affected. Moving forth from there, I would like for each of you to paint our subject Crunchy here, paying particular attention to how the fire I will administer to the base of his genes affects his face. Wait, what? Stand still, Crunchy. This will only take a moment. Are you sure this is safe, my dude? We'll find it out soon enough, won't we? Wait, wait, what? Whoa, 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 I don't... Whoa! Whoa! Now children notice as the flames dance their way up his jeans, how the shadows in turn dance across his face. Fascinating! Provocative! He looks like he's in pain! I say he does, doesn't he? Oh, Crunchy! Crunchy, do be quiet, please. I'm afraid you're distracting the children. Ah! The pain! The pain is horrific, brah! Well, that's no reason to go on like a ninny. It's only a leg. No, Mr. McGarnacle. It's not that. It's not? What the bloody hell is it then? It's... It's you. It's it's always been you. I don't understand. When I came out here from California, it was to be a model. An art model. But now, all I want is you. But... Oh, oh, Crunchy, it could never work. I mean, I'm perfectly healthy and your leg is on fire. (laughs) Tis my loins that are on fire, brah. Loins that burn only for thee. Oh, I just don't know, Crunchy. I just don't know. I can't do this anymore. So goeth the only broski I'll ever truly dig. Hey, Susie. What? This show went in a weird direction, didn't it? Tune in next week for another episode of Portrait of a Man on Fire, a BBC Limited series event. Okay, so Ryan, this is actually going to be a pretty interesting comparison feature because there's a lot on the surface actually here. Like, we didn't really have to do too much digging on this one. Sometimes... You know, they're a little specious with regards to the connections that we're allowed or able anyways to make with the films that we look at. But this one had some really sort of glaring and obvious examples uh, that bubbled up to the surface. So, Ryan, I'm going to go ahead and let you kick this one off. Why don't you uh, give us some compare and contrast on Portrait of a Lady and Friends and Neighbors? It's pretty we've kind of gone through some of this already where your friends and neighbors was just harsh, brash in your face. uh rough around the edges look at the parasites that humanity can be uh and their uh, effect on each other and their relationships and how that all plays in with love and uh, or the lack thereof and what we call 
relationships don't necessarily have any connection. They can be cold. It's a very cold look at uh, at humanity's connections to each other and their what they call love. Portrait uh, of a lady on fire is just the opposite. Even to the way that it's shot, uh, like I said, the skin tones, the oranges, uh, the warmth. Um, I mean, it's portrait of a lady on fire. Like her dress literally is warm. <laughs> like, <laughs> everything about that film shows a warm embrace of what love uh, can be and the purity of of that between uh, anyone. Uh, you know, uh, superseding uh, societies, what society deems to be acceptable at any given moment. Um, so in this particular case, it was between two women and it didn't matter. It, it transcended all of that. Like I said, at the, at the top of the show. So, um, you know, it, the portrait was leaps and bounds, uh, more well-made. It was probably equally acted. I will say, um, you know, giving credit where credit is due with your friends and neighbors. Uh, I was engaged by all performances across the board. Uh, I would watch Portrait again. I would not watch Your Friends and Neighbors again, probably, uh, unless I had to for an assignment or something again. Um, but luckily, my second podcast is Muffin to Say, and I don't uh, <laughs> think that has anything to do with <laughs> well, uh, the muffins uh, <laughs> and our viewers, call, listeners calling in to talk about their favorite muffins. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with Friends and Neighbors. So uh, anyways. Oh, that's hilarious, dude. Yes. Yeah, so, and, and yeah, I do think that's right there. So there's kind of something interesting that presented itself to me when I was really holding these films up to one another. And that is the nature of how men and women see love relationships and specifically sex. And so obviously, right. you know, Le- Neil Labute, you know, wrote and direct his film. And then with Celine Siama over, probably butchered that, I'm sure, uh, over on Portrait of a Lady on Fire being, you know, the writer-director of that film. And obviously we talked about how there was no women in that film for pretty much, you know, the entire film. So you very much got a film constructed by women and a film constructed by men. And we hold them up together. And I think one of the interesting things that you look at is, you know, and these are obviously not universal truths, but I think they're much more prevalent than not. I think that it would fair to say that in holding these films up to one another, males use sex as an indication of the strength of the relationship, right? Like if 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 we're not having good sex, then we couldn't possibly have a good relationship, right? Whereas Yeah, that's the barometer. Got yeah, it. whereas women look at the sex as an expression of the relationship, you know? We have a great relationship, therefore we have great sex. Um, or, you know, right. we have a, a bond and the sex may or may not be good, but it, it doesn't it doesn't ha- it doesn't affect the bond there first and foremost. I guess another kind of way to say it is it would be like 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 from it's almost like for men, sex is the point. Right. It is the objective. It's like we need to have a healthy relationship so that we can have great sex. If we are not having great sex, that tells me and us that we do not have a great relationship. Right. Whereas, um you know, it's the, whereas with the women, it's more just, uh, you know, it's, it's just like I said before, you know, the, the expression of it. It's, it's not the point. The point is the relationship and then the sex comes as a result of that, you know? So, and then even when you look at the nature of the characters, right? Everybody in friends and neighbors is so inwardly focused and so selfish and it's so all about then right with the you know ben stiller wanting to get his nuts off with all you know these different women and amy brenneman and 
blah, 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 and wanting to get back at Aaron Eckhart for perceived slights and what have you, and the Amy Brenneman character wanting to satisfy her desire to feel alive, you know, and, and all of these people are just in it for themselves, whereas when you look at Portrait of a Lady, when they fight, when Marianne and Heloise fight, like, it's just an expression of the frustration they feel from not being able to be together, you know? So, you know, it, yeah. it kind of like if you want to give it a little sort of, you know, uh, ring to it, you know, you could say that, like, Friends is all, of, you know, Friends is all about the me, whereas Portrait is all about the we, right? Like, in Friends and Neighbors, each individual is looking out for themselves. In Portrait of a Lady, Heloise and Marianne desperately want to be with one another, and their frustration comes when they can't be together. So that was kind of what presented itself to me. Yeah, no, I agree uh, wholeheartedly. However, I will say that I refuse to hold this friends and neighbors uh, bullshit up as the uh, standard by which men should be judged oh, yeah, in no, filmmaking dude. or in love or uh, in relationships and that this is uh, how men think or or their version of, of sex and love and all of that. Fuck that. Like, no. Yeah. Fuck that. Fuck this movie. <laughs> fuck Neil. <laughs> fuck all that shit. I'm not holding that as the standard. Um, you know, you've had plenty of amazing love stories uh, told by men, uh, romance uh, directed by men and, and, uh, and, and, you know, sensitivity and all of that. Uh, I mean, shit, even Brokeback Mountain was directed by Ang Lee. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, yeah. And that was, you know, two men that uh, were in the, a similar position of, of Portrait of a Lady. In fact, I thought about that movie, uh, you know, a couple times during Portrait because it was kind of the same thing sure. where it was very much a polar, a polarizing uh, similarity wherein you have two men that are against all odds that uh, at the crux of it just want to spend time together. Um, like you and me on this podcast, buddy. You know, <laughs> I mean, we're just. <laughs> uh, just getting through it. And so <laughs> that said, um, I will add to that, that uh, your friends and neighbors, uh, I couldn't help realizing that uh, sex is just silly. It just is <laughs> as much importance as they put on it. They sure do portray it in a silly fashion. Um, it kind of took me back to the Forrest Gump scene where uh, his mother is is having sex with the school principal yeah. and uh, just the grunting and the, eh, eh, <laughs> just the dirty talk and all the things that we hold dear uh, to make our sex life exciting. And I'm using air quotes that you can't see, but uh, <laughs> it's just all so fucking silly. <laughs> you really break it down and watch it from the outside looking in. Do you like that? Do you really fucking like it? It's like, do I sound like that? <laughs> do i sound like a oh man oh god you're 100 percent right man well this was a fun discussion though so uh as we do it was as we do at the end of every episode ryan it's time to pull some random films for our next full episode which by the way for those people yep. listening uh we didn't we didn't really announce that um ryan and i have officially made the call that we are going to End season one at episode 20. Now, this episode is 17. What that means is we're going to have two more half episodes and one more full episode. And then there's going to be a little bit of a break. I know. I know. It's really disappointing. But we've actually got some really exciting ideas for season two. Uh, we're not going to do a full retool. We're gonna, we've got a couple little tweaks and adjustments that we're going to make. It's all going to be a better listening experience for you guys and don't worry, the comedy sketches are not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. It's very much going to be the same. 
uh, just a little, just hopefully made it a little bit more accessible for you guys. And then uh, we're also going to come up with some really fun little mini episodes in between. Um, we're going to come up with some different features. You know, if you've listened to the whole first season, you know, you've probably got some things that we do like cinematic confessions and, you know, some of the improv stuff that we do at the top of the show. Uh, we really just kind of want to lean in more of that, you know, do some little 15, 20 minute mini episodes, really just keep it about the comedy, keep things fun, keep things light. So you will have that to look forward to. And once again, hopefully we make it that much easier for you to listen to and enjoy our program. We are still going to have the random films like we do right now. So Ryan, this is our last full episode random movie poll using our master list and our random.org true number generator, which as we like to remind you, yes, we get paid up the butt to plug them on this show. So uh, we come over here now. We have got 155 movies on this list, and we're going to pick two of them right now. So when we go to the first one, we come up with number, wow, going to the top of the list, Ryan, number 15. Again, we've been living at that top of the list, yeah. Well, no, you know Remember we got uh, Bowfinger and Dagon back to back? Yeah, so, well, it's actually kind of funny because we've been, we've been, we've, it's been front and back because if you recall... Your Friends and Neighbors was the very last film on the list. So last full episode, yeah. it pulled from the beginning, and then literally the very last number, which actually would have been Zardoz had we not done Zardoz the week prior, uh, which is just kind right. of funny. So we've been dancing at the front and back of this thing. Maybe we need a new random number generator for episode. Uh, no, this is, this is true <laughs> randomness. This is true randomness. They go okay. on and on about it right here. Uh, I'm, I'm reading right now. Dr. Mods Har... Of the School of Computer Science and Statistics, which absolutely sounds like a bullshit fake school. <laughs> school of Computer <laughs> Science and Statistics in Dublin. That's amazing. Oh, God. Anyways, let's go ahead and call this film out. So, Ryan, we got number 15. I don't know if you've ever seen this. I've never seen this movie, nor have I seen a Vincent Gallo movie. We are watching Buffalo 66, his first film. Have you ever seen that? I have not. This is uh, one of those box cover movies. 100%. That, uh, I've talked about in the past. <laughs> Blonde I've Wig seen Christina this on the Ricci. video shelves 100,000 times. Absolutely. Yeah, this is where uh, Christina Ricci started to get a little sexualized. Yeah. Um, as she got a little older, you know, we all kind of knew her as Wednesday Adams and. She outgrew that, and and here she was in this film, and it was like, Jesus, okay, well, someone grew up, and Vincent Gallo didn't have a problem with uh, getting into some adult content uh, with that, but no, I have never seen this. Uh, Mickey Rourke is in this film as well, Uh, Ben Gazzara, uh, Rosanna Arquette, John Michael Vincent, Angelica Houston, uh, who I've been caught having a three-way with with Jack Nicholson, (laughs) so... Got some personal connection there, Kevin Pollack. So yeah, this is a star-filled film. Whatever happened to Vincent Gallo? Anyway, we'll have to take a d- deep dive into his well, career. It's when we it's get to it's this. funny that you talk about the whole like sexual explicit thing because if you recall, he did that movie, The Brown Bunny, uh, with uh, yes. Chloe, what's her name or whatever, and uh, Savini. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was just, I mean, that, that I think Roger Ebert said at the time that it was literally the worst festival screening he had ever seen in his entire life, and it was like really, it was one of those okay. things where it was like an eighty-minute film that the guy. 
you know, probably because he was on a shitload of drugs, whatever drugs those were, but it was, like, dragged out to, like, a two-and-a-half-hour film. So, you know, he was doing that thing where he's like, yeah, I'm just going to show you, you know, a four-minute static shot of, you know, motorcycles running around a thing with no narration or whatever. And so, like, it pissed a lot of people off. But what's interesting is that he ended up recutting that film, like, three or four times. And so I think if you look for it here and now, it's down to, like, 95 to 100 minutes. And apparently it's huh. not so bad. Um, so I, I guess kind of shades of like, uh, oh, dude, what's the uh, the the guy that made Donnie Darko? We have it on our film. Southland Tales. Like, I think it was one of those things. Like, Southland Tales yes. is known for having, like, an absolutely horrible, horrible festival screening. But um, the dude went back and recut it. Richard Kelly, that is. And now it's actually a good film. So, yeah, we'll be checking out Buffalo or 66. Justice League. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> this may be the, the Snyder cut of... Uh, Chloe Savini given blowjobs. So, you know, <laughs> maybe maybe we'll get to uh, that film shortly. But yeah, this is 1998's Buffalo 66. Also, uh, well to point out that we're back in 1998 again. So yeah, dude. Like I was going to say, neighbors, this was right. We'll see how this... Uh, yeah, this was right in that slate of I mean, those uh, sort of, you know, mid-90s kind of indie films. Um, absolutely. And I'm looking at uh, the box cover right now. Uh, right away, stash goatee combo. (laughs) (laughs) Stash um, goatee combo. That's amazing. (laughs) Yep. We're right back in it. 98. He'll let you know with his chin, uh, chin bib. So, uh, anyways, uh, carry on. What's our next movie? All right, man. So, uh, going to come over here, going to use the random.org number generator. And we have one twenty. So, Huh, Ryan, look at that. Bandying back and forth from beginning to the end again. Maybe you're on to something there. All right. Okay. So we come to 120. Okay. This is this is going to be really interesting. So I know they just released a newer, longer cut of this film. So there's two cuts of this film. We're going to be watching the 132-minute cut of John Cassavetti's The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Have you heard of this one, Ryan? I have not. No, I know nothing about this film. Yeah. Other than it's, I mean, I know Cassavetes, obviously, but. Uh, well, so. so uh, it looks like it's from 76. Yeah. And, and here's actually the funny thing, man. This is, uh, <laughs> as we like to do, yet another cinematic confession. This is my first John Cassavetes movie. At least it will be. Yeah, I, I've seen them like, uh, you know, around film school days and stuff like that uh, to analyze his style. But I've never watched it in this. I've never watched a, a Cassavetes film in this set kind of setting where I sit down and just watch the film and absorb it for what it is. Um, so I'm going to try to go the opposite route with it and uh, try to take it for its entertainment value and, and see how it all plays out uh, to kind of wash over me. I will also say, here's another weird thing. Get ready for this. Ben Gazzara is in both of these films. What? Uh, Buffalo 66. And uh, he stars in uh, in the Cassavetes film. So that's amazing. Weird, right? That's, yeah, that's incredible. And and and, and for those who like, don't he's know. He's literally the top billed actor um, <laughs> in, uh, in The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. He's the guy. So uh, uh, I guess he's the Chinese Bookie or the killer of such. No, I, so, <laughs> he's one of the two. No, no, it's actually, uh, it's, it, it, I believe this. he plays the owner of a strip club. And he, I, I think he like. Okay. Uh, so I think, interestingly enough, I think probably where this came up, I think that there is shades of this that later influenced uncut gems that came out recently, because I think it's like 
Uh, oh, okay, yeah. Cool. So the the main guy like basically owns a strip club, and then he has a debt to the mob, and he basically doesn't have the money, so he like. I don't know if he makes a series of bets or he tries to like off people or whatever, but it's basically like this guy's serious into the mob for money and he's just trying to like double down on his skeeziness to get out of it. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's from 76. So I already kind of have an idea of how it's going to feel right. Like, like all those like (laughs) mid seventies sort of neo noir at the time. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's, And you even said, I'm hoping that you enjoy, I hope there's not too much of, cause you've described how some of those seventies films were kind of like the Gallo film, right? They'll spend five minutes showing Gene Hackman, you know, grocery shopping instead of hunting down the killer. And you're like, bro, there are serious things at play. And you're like, hmm, I wonder how the apples are. Like, yeah, so, right. Uh, yeah. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. 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 We'll see how that goes. But, and then this was recently introduced uh, to the Criterion collection as well. So like oh, cool. most of our films. Okay. So, yeah, uh, quick, quick uh, check on Google says it is free on Tubi, which, as we've discussed, is the Walmart of streaming options. But it is free. Let's hope it's the <laughs> longer 135 uh, minute version. We do want to watch that longer one if possible. Just um, so that, you know, uh, that that's like basically the director's cut. That's the one that was was re- re-released. So, yeah. Yep. So uh, once again, guys, just to- we like our we like our movies like uh, Neil Abute likes his penises as long as possible. Hey-o. Let's do this. <laughs> 235 minutes. Yeah. But I do believe Buffalo 66 is a pretty short film. Uh, I think Vincent Gallo makes shorter films. Yeah. So once again, guys, we will be looking at Buffalo 66 and the killing of a Chinese bookie. Going to be some interesting ones there. Definitely. Now, Ryan do want to let the listeners know that, uh, as you know, we don't do a lot of pimping on this show, but if you guys do subscribe to us on the old Apple or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever it is, uh, that does help us. Um, so if you like what we have to bring to the show, best thing you can do to support us is give us those subs, give us those follows, uh, follow us on the Instagram. We have like a really and subscribe. <laughs> we have a really gorgeous Instagram page featuring a lot of the quotes and some really interesting stills and, alternate theatrical posters you can also find us on twitter that's at esoterica cinema uh we'd love to hear from you there kind of bandy about back and forth and then finally we have the old email for those that don't like to be limited to characters that's esoterica cinema at gmail.com and you can write us about the muffin that you're enjoying because we all know that the only reason anybody reaches out to us is to tell them about to tell us rather about muffins and so keep it going Dig that chocolate. Let us know how it is. Esoterica Cinema on the socials. So thanks for listening, guys. That's going to wrap up this episode of Esoterica Cinema. We will see you on the next episode, which is our second to last half episode for David Cronenberg's Videodrome. And then follow that up with our final full-length episode featuring Buffalo 66 and the killing of a Chinese bookie. We'll see you then. From the imagination of acclaimed author Ashton McCauley comes the next great American anti-hero, Nick Ventner, in Whiteout. Nick is a bit of a lush, preferring whiskey to water and bar hopping to exercise. But when a mysterious benefactor hires Nick to find the lost gates of Shangri-La, Nick sobers up just enough to take on the case. Featuring non-stop action and a hilarious wit, Whiteout by Ashton McCauley is a laugh-a-minute thrill ride that will keep you turning the pages until the very end. Whiteout.
Available now in ebook, hardcover, and paperback versions. Online and everywhere books are sold. Published by Aberrant Literature.